This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Mr. Scamander, do you think Dumbledore will mourn for you? Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, James Hamrick, and I am joined, as always, with my co-host, Gabe Green. What's going on, man? Not much. Really excited to be wrapping up this series. Um, This will be a very interesting discussion. This will be the end of our exploration of the Wizarding World franchise with Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. I have a feeling this is going to be a long discussion, so let's just move right into the main conversation. Uh, And that is with the the behind-the-scenes story on this film. So before they began any series production on the first Fantastic Beasts film, they knew they would be doing at least a trilogy, uh, which was then revised right before the first film's release to be a set of five films, um, and that Yates would be returning to direct the sequel and possibly all five, which is pretty much seems to be the case right now. J.K. Rowling would once again return to write the film, and Steve Clovis is still a producer, but I couldn't find any information as as far as if he had any involvement in writing the sequel the way he did for the first film. And before you go into the casting, James, uh, there's one thing we should probably kind of briefly mention is that is the whole Johnny Depp yeah. thing. Um, so the, the the allegations from Amber Heard came out basically either after filming was completed or towards the tail end of filming for the first film. And by the time you got to the release of the first film towards the end of 2016, they, they kind of got into a fever pitch as far as people talking about them. And there were calls to recast the role, which Rowling eventually responded to in a very short post on her website in December of 2017, which was a year after the first one's release. Essentially, she said, having heard both sides of the story, her and Warner Brothers were, were happy, were essentially content to continue with Johnny Depp in the role, which then continued until we all know the story of uh, the next film. But Yeah, I remember. I remember there was even like controversy around her response because part of what she'd said is she said the filmmakers and I are not only comfortable sticking with our original cast, but genuinely happy to have Johnny playing a major character in the movies. So it was like this, it wasn't even this tepid, like, well, we're this far. We got, it's like, no, we love Johnny and we're happy to have him be like this big main character actually. And it's super weird because I don't know if like right now, it feels as if there is more and more support for Johnny Depp, like far more support for Johnny Depp. It in, really in depends what corner of the internet you're looking on. But yeah, like, there's there's definitely been a, a, a groundswell of justice for Johnny Depp. Yeah, post his firing. Well, it's, so it's it's just weird that like in 2016 it felt like because his casting broke on November 1st, and it was like immediate backlash. But back at that point, everybody, you know, his he wasn't really swinging fully with the whole like with disputing it. And so there was a lot more unanimity in the whole like, yeah, Johnny Depp's probably a scumbag. Yeah, then he came back swinging. And, 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 and but it's just so weird that like during that point, they stuck to their guns to the point of being like, we're happy to have Johnny Depp whenever it was almost universal. Yes, yeah, so like, the, the thing that, that happened was he he sued a, a French, I believe it was a French magazine, possibly a, a European publication. Essentially, he sued them for libel, and the and the and he he essentially lost that suit, 
And in the judge's decision, they said that they believed Amber Heard's story. And that was gotcha. very shortly after that is when um, Warner Bros. fired him. Okay. It just, it, judging judging solely by social media, it just, it feels, it felt weird, at least to me, as somebody who wasn't looking into all the specifics of just like, man, univer- uh, like near universal outcry, he keeps his job. Whereas now it's like, man, you've got some heated arguments and a lot of like loud, loud justice for Johnny people. And like now is when he gets fired. It, it just felt weird. You know, even like there were interviews with him where he was, he was asked uh, just about it, you know, about keeping his job and everything going on with, with crimes of Grindelwald. And he, he'd said, I'll be honest with you. I felt bad for JK having to feel all these various feelings from people out there. I felt bad that she had to take that. And so it's mm. like, yeah, it's just like dominating a lot of the conversation around uh, around the film before it even came out. Um, but in addition, although that's not even, I guess, a, a huge casting news because like he was he was in the, the previous one, so there was also an expectation that he would return. Uh, <laughs> so to get into the the actually new cast, though. Uh, we have Callum Turner as Theseus Scamander, or Theseus Scamander. We have Thea Lamb and Ruby Wolfenden portraying younger versions of Letta. Um, Claudia Kim plays Nagini for some reason. Wait, what? A human's playing a snake? How does that work? Yeah, well, well I'm still questioning that. Uh, William uh, Natalem as Yusuf Kama with Isaac Domingos portraying the younger Yusuf. Brontus Jodorowsky 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 plays Nicholas Flamel in a very weird decision so he is the son of Alejandro Jodorowsky the very the surrealist filmmaker who you know there's a very famous documentary about you know about the the Dune adaptation he was going to make he's his son wow Um, and he's only like 50 so that explains all the makeup yeah we also have Fiona Glascott as young Minerva McGonagall. Uh, Poppy Corby, who, who I think does a good impression. Poppy Corgi Took plays Vinda Rosier. Ingvar Egert Sugerson as Grimson, the bounty hunter. They really uh, mind the European <laughs> I was about to say, casting like, pool. Just listen to these names. Olafur Dari Olafsson as Skender, uh, who is the ringmaster of the Circus Arcanus. French actress who has since unfortunately passed away. Uh, Danielle Hugh, who plays Irma Dugard, Corvus's half elf nanny. Uh, oh, she passed away. Mm-hmm, yeah, she was she was really good in that little in her little scene. I know. I feel like she had like a, a legitimately solid presence in it. So that was sad to learn when I was looking this up. Um, David Sakurai as Crawl, uh, one of Grindelwald's henchmen. Victoria Yeats who uh, plays Newt's commander's assistant, Bunty. Uh, Jessica Williams as Lally Hicks. Um, and if you're thinking, man, that's a lot of characters, you are correct. <laughs> yeah, because we still have more to go. <laughs> we st- we also have Isora Barbe-Browns as Lorena Kama, uh, the Lestrange's mother. Uh, and then I guess the biggest bit of casting in the film, Jude Law as a young Albus Dumbledore. Um, which was like, that was like the big thing that people were talking about, like seeing a Dumbledore this young. Doesn't exactly line up with the Chamber of Secrets flashback, but, <laughs> you know, whatever. 
Well, that's that was 50 years previously. This is 80, 70-ish years previously. Okay, well, Jude Law has about 20 years to turn into Richard Harris. I heard that uh, Richard Harris's son, Jared Harris, who's a you know very successful actor in his own right, had been considered. Yeah, I, the the list of people who were considered is like, dang, what a what an incredible pool. Yeah, on the surface, casting Jared Harris sounds really good, but I think like he has a very different presence. There's a kind of a a coldness to him that I really love, but I don't. Maybe he could do it. But I've I've never seen him be as uh i don't know as charming as dumbledore needs to be the thing is i feel like because i i've loved jared harris and everything i've seen i feel like he could pull it off and i also feel like weirdly enough you know he's he's um he's the son of richard harris but honestly i feel like he has way more of uh gambon's energy about him like scary (laughs) like I could see him actually doing like a convincing younger uh, Gambon Dumbledore. Um, mm-hmm. But anyways, you are right. He was, and this is also how I found out that Jared Harris was Richard Harris' son. I didn't know that before. Um, but yes, Hollywood he, is just a bunch of nepotism. I know. That's why I'm not in it. It's the only reason. <laughs> uh, but other people, people who were considered is Christian Bale, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Mark Strong. And I was like, man, you're just getting like all the great Brits. This is just what you're doing. I, I, I think Jude Law was the right choice. He he has the twinkle in his eyes that is yeah. so freaking Dumbledore. <laughs> uh, and then, so the only additional thing is, and you may have to remind me of this, in the credits, I, thought, I saw that uh, Toby Regbo and uh, Jamie Campbell Bauer reprise their roles as Dumbledore and Grindelwald from Deathly Hallows Part 1, but I don't remember that. Mm, um, I wonder, is there a flashback sequence that I just, I'm forgetting about? But the cast referred to like them reprising roles from that movie. Oh, no, no, no. Um, the kid who played Grindelwald was in Deathly Hallows Part 1, I believe, yeah. where he's standing, he's sitting in the window and he jumps out. I think it's the same actor who plays him. Okay. So as far as the uh, production, uh, filming began in July of 2017. Uh, Philippe Russolo uh, returned as cinematographer. Um, like the previous film and all the Harry Potter films, the majority of it was shot at the Leaves in Film Studios. Uh, they, they tore down the massive New York City sets, uh, and then built the uh, Paris streets that we see now in this film. Uh, both locations look, both uh, sets look pretty amazing. Yeah, there's not a lot of avail- available info on the production, so I'm assuming it went pretty smoothly. So for the the film's music, uh, James Newton Howard did return to uh, to score the film, and this time I did listen to the full score, <laughs> and it's very good. Yeah, um, one of the reasons for that is y- Yates said that. When you're dealing with a film this big, generally a composer will come in, particularly if you're dealing with someone like James Newton Howard, who's one of the in the highest demand, one of the composers in most high demand in Hollywood. They'll come in for like two or three months at the tail end of production uh, and do the work then. Uh, but for both these films, he was able to get uh, James Newton Howard to come in like pr- even prior to filming and to just be working alongside them as they're shaping the film to you know, really hash out the themes and the music. Um, and I think that really paid off. I mean, the first one's really good. This one is just a knockout for me. Uh, I knew that 
ahead of time that I was like, okay, Gabe really wants me to get this full score in. So I knew he was going to listen to the full score, but I also was like wanting to pay more attention to the music during the movie. And I feel like that is noticeable. Like, and we'll also get into this, but Yates as a director is just like, he's really back in this one. And so there are scenes where like, Yates is like flying around with his camera and Howard's just going off with the score. And I'm like, mm, what a combo. It's a movie. It's all about mood. So just the, the music is like 75% of that yeah. sometimes. Uh, and then for the film's release, it had its world premiere at the UGC Cine Cité Bercy in Paris, uh, much to Grindelwald's chagrin, uh, <laughs> on November 8th, 2018, and then had its wide release on November 16th. All right, then. <laughs> Here we go. James, what did you think about this movie? This is your first time seeing it. Yes. Too. I think, and this will be surprising. I don't know if it will be surprising. Maybe people who know my taste wouldn't have found this surprising. I, I'm not at all in love with it. <laughs> but I think it has more room to grow. It was a really, really weird movie. And I've got... <laughs> I've got a lot of things I need to we, talk we, through. We did warn you. It's lot. true. But it's like, the thing is, it's not weird in the ways that I thought it would have been. But it's weird in different ways I wasn't expecting. And then a lot of similar issues. I, there's also a lot of continuity in my issues between the first and Crimes of Grindelwald. So mm. I'm sure we'll we'll talk through all of this. Yeah, so my story with this film is I actually got to see an early screening, like a Wednesday or Tuesday screening, a couple days before release at, at uh, my local Alamo Draft House, uh, which sadly went out of business during a COVID. It's bought out by someone else now. Um, but I went to an advanced screening, which was full of fans, and that was a really fun experience. Um, they enjoyed it that night. I probably went home and thought about it <laughs> later on. But that night, they were happy. Um, and I, I liked it, but I was like, this, what is this movie? There's so much happening. Also, it ends on that reveal, and that is, was a, oh, a big boy. sour note. Um, but then I went back and saw it, and I liked it more. I went back and saw it again, and liked it more. And I think I saw it, I saw it three or four times in theaters, and every single time I came out, I was like, do I love this movie? There's so much wrong with it, but I think I love it. Um, and then I've, I think I watched it again, uh, and then I saw it again for this uh, for the you know, for the podcast. And I love this movie. <laughs> I love it so much. It's it's this weird thing. It's it's like when I'm watching like a a, a great Zack Snyder sequence or a great M Night M Night Shyamalan film where everything is coming together, or maybe a great Guy Ritchie sequence, like where where you just like this is a person who is in full control of their craft. Every single element, it's, it's, it's really big filmmaking and every single element, you know, the cinematography, the acting, the music, the, the writing, the dialogue is just coming together to fully transport me. And I, I, I forget I'm watching a movie. I'm just, just elevated. I mean, I'm sure you understand that feeling. Um, I'm like that in 95% of this film, just Yates found a vibe and a frequency that just bypasses all reason and logic for me and goes straight to my heart. And I am, I am just enthralled pretty much every time. Just like just the way Yates tells a story. And so it's similar to um, 
Half-Blood, very similar to Half-Blood Prince, where that's just a movie where it's, it's the vibe and the feel and the tone. You just There's kind a of particular sequence in, in Grindelwald where I'm like, mm, 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 Yeah, you just exist in it. And and that's what that, that this is, it's, it's, this is not, it's very different in feel than, than uh, Half-Blood Prince, but it's that similar, it's a similar kind of uh, engagement, I guess. Um, and it was, it was, I love, it was so cool. I was, when I was watching interviews for, uh, the first Fantastic Beast films for the behind the scenes stuff, Yates was talking about having read rolling script for the sequel, which he hadn't yet directed. And he said that, you know, the next one is so different to the first Joe's created this sort of dreamlike, quite haunting, very beautiful story. And it was really cool because, like, the, the words dreamlike and haunting were words that I had been using for years to describe this film. So it was like, it's like, he knew that from the script like, like that was his intention like he got that out of the script and he said i want to bring a you'll make a dream like haunting film and for me that's what i get out of this and we'll have a lot to say about all the different issues and story choices um but that, that that's that's where i'm coming to this movie from um and i i want to open with just we talked a lot in the previous um episode about how yates felt off as a, like his his direction felt a little off and yeah. we, I, I assume that's because he was you know directing Tarzan at the same time it's very flat to me yeah it, it, like not terrible but it, it did his job as like this is not this doesn't feel like the guy who directed Half-Blood Prince or Deathly Lost Part 1 and then you watch this one and like for me it's like from the very moment I hear those three like the ah, 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 that kind of motif I'm like I'm here yeah. I'm in this movie I messaged and, you and Ryan within the first sequence to be, and just said, Yates is alive again. Like, it was so cool to see, like, we're not just, we're literally just minutes in. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, the life is coursing, like, the blood's coursing through the movie again. Like, after, I don't know. I'm, and obviously, y'all, like, I'm coming from a place of someone who didn't really love Fantastic Beasts. And partly, I think part of it was because, I just, I didn't have a lot of those moments of excitement, but like just the opening sequence here, I'm like, oh, this is, this is what's yeah, up. Just how he builds his sense of grandeur, his eye for just meticulous compositions that are slightly off and unusual. Um, the way he builds a sequence is a very, just a patience to how he could just, just like allowing us to, to kind of move through the prison and how they're carrying him and going up the stairs with him, like as this like limp marionette. And it's just, he allows sequences to just play out in a very patient, right? And then the action explodes. It's also, it's also very exciting, but just the way he constructs and paces sequences about is just, it's so much more interesting and just, just unique. And like, whereas the first one felt like it was solid, but it, but it could have been directed by any number of people. This is like, yes, this is Yates again. Yeah, it's it's so I remember I, I because I brought this up on the episode of Fantastic Beasts or not, uh, but you know there's a lot of these like Hollywood directors where like you give them just like kind of a studio action movie you see their names pop up a lot and it's like they're good they're competent but they don't have like that look and you're not you're not necessarily surprised that they that they don't really break out of just like this solid kind of guy that the studio hires to do this movie or that movie or whatever franchise movie. Um, and you're not surprised that they don't really build a name for themselves. I'm, I am surprised that David Yates, I mean, I guess he's not technically that because he is the Harry Potter guy, but I feel like David Yates as a director is just like 
so beyond the typical kind of like, I don't know, whatever kind of, he's going to give you your sturdy, but, you know, not incredible, typical blockbuster look, because he's got such a vision. And so I was sad to feel like that was really not necessarily the case in the last one. But like I said here, it's he's doing so many things. It's like that you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to make it. This way. You didn't have to like, there's just so many neat things he does with the camera. He's moving it all over the place. I love, I love the color grading in this movie. That's just like, I don't know. You talk about how the, like this movie, so much of this movie is mood and tone. I feel like just the way it looks really feeds into that. And like, I mean, th- there's something like Gothic about this like opening sequence. We got a flying black carriage, you know, like it's with, <laughs> with Thestrals pulling it. And this guy with no, t- like, it's just, it's so dark. It's like fantasy Edgar Allan Poe almost. And he's like leaning into it with these like tilting shots and this swirling camera. It's just, it's so cool. Just that, that, that scene where, is a Grindelwald is just sitting still in the prison and a fly comes, it gets zapped and we just have this really cool macro lens of the lens of the fly wing floating by. Then the, 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 the eye hole eye slits open in the door and we have a conversation where it's just two, you know, uh, Madame Peccary and then the European guy with just their eyes as they're watching him and coming back to Grindelwald's too, eyes. Both of them it's, looking through the peephole. It's like, oh, it's like whether the camera is moving around and being crazy or like just those cool little, because like there's that shot, like all the shots of him in there are cool. And then the shot of them looking through the slits. But then like other just like, it's it's not like big moving, like it's not these big movements, but even just the images of him like, sitting in the carriage while it's still flying is just like ooh, that's a that's a good image mm-hmm. yeah and and, and that's something i don't want to talk about a sequence like I, I i think i still think it's a little bit um it, it's, it's 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 a bit jarring in some like just the way the the way the lightning happens and everyone's in black sometimes it's a bit too chaotic to see what's happening but i think it's a vast improvement over a very similar sequence in um in death Hills part one um, this one feels much more coherent and and clearer, but there are times where it's a bit too much chaos. But yeah, it, overall, it's very it's it's exciting. It's really well paced, and I think like just what it does is it ju- it demonstrates this man is a serious threat to us, I, and, and, and he's a threat in two ways. The first way is where they're telling us he is the manipulator. He is the persuader. We've had to change his guard three times because <laughs> every time we change the guard, he convinces them to join his side. That We finally had to cut out his tongue. Oh, and also, he already escaped. <laughs> like, that side of, that's his power. Also, he's just a freaking powerful wizard who could probably beat just about any one of us in a fight. Like, both of those are established right in the opening sequence, and I love that. So, going from that high po- high praise, we do got to talk about what I think is probably going to be your primary criticism, and that is uh, the storytelling in this film and just the way Rowling chose to structure it. Um, I'll let you go ahead with that, James. I'll probably agree with most of it. Yeah, so there's this is where I was meaning that there's like a lot of crossover between my issues with this and the first one. And I think it's only worse here, Uh, which is that like, it feels like 
okay, one, it feels like we get way, way, way into the movie, at least I do, and I'm still asking, like, what is this really about? Like, where where's all the momentum coming from? And I think part of why it's hard to, like, figure out where all the momentum is coming from is because it's so overstuffed. So what might be pushing this part forward may not necessarily be what's pushing this part forward. And so it's like, you've got like, and like we're breaking up different groups. And so you're like, well, you've got Newt and Jacob who, and eventually Tina who are looking for this other guy who's a new guy who has his whole backstory. Now let us back into it along with Newt's brother who's doing this. Queenie is kind of here and there and all of a sudden she's gone and now she's reintroduced in a weird way. And then Dumbledore has his own thing going on. It's just like, it's so, so jam packed of like eight different B plots happening. Oh, and, and we've got Credence who's still, who's just, whose seeming death was like the finale to the last one. Who's just like, oh no. Well, he, they, they did show in the previous film, they did show a bit of his obscurial spirit, or whatever, escaping. Oh, did I miss um, that? Yeah, it's a it's a brief shot, but you do see it kind of going up out of the rubble. Oh, okay. Well, then that's on me. Um, but even with that being said, like we got Credence, who's just at a circus for some reason with a new friend, who like would have been superfluous, like would have been superfluous, but I guess in the most innocent kind of way. If had it not also been like this is Nagini. <laughs> And now we're like, we're doing the kind of like really reaching connections to like, you know, the, the other source. It's just. It's oh, just, we have not begun with the reaching connections. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> this is only the introduction. But it's just like, man, when you look, when you sit down and like try to explain, like, I, I feel like the gif uh, from It's Always Sunny with Charlie Day and like the red, the, all, the red string on the wall, like keeping up with who is looking for who, who wants revenge on what, who, like, I, there's just so, so many subplots happening at once. And I don't feel like they might, there's there's a kind of a, a thematic unity going on, but they're really stretching when they're trying to like, in terms of plot, bring them together, I feel like. It, a, a lot of my problems really, crescendo in a scene where people are literally taking time to like they're, they're taking turns to monologue about their past this is like right before the cl the climax in the crypt yes yeah where it's just like i want to do this like i have i have been questioning what and how and like what this guy is trying to do and how he's going to factor in because like like i said we're way way into the movie and i'm still like this guy, we've seen him a few times, and I'm still like worried. I'm like, why? What's what's going on with this guy? <laughs> and then, he, why is there a, a slug in, or, or some kind of squid in his eye? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and like, and I, I keep waiting. And then it's like as if to make up for lost time because they haven't really done a lot of explaining. He's just like, here's ten minutes of everything about me. And then once he's done. And it's, it's really, it's, it's like un, um, unintentionally funny because the whole time, I think, um, why am I going blank on her name? Uh, Letta, Zoe Kravitz. Zoe Kravitz, who I think is very good. Really um, good. She, 
her her performance as he's telling the story i think is like deserves attention like because there's like there's moments where she's trying to interject she's like yes but it wasn't him but but no like you've got really really solid moments of like dramatic acting from her there uh, and then it's like you were wrong and then she pulls out like the magic leafy thing that like comes out on the floor and she's like what actually happened and then like after like this this kind of <laughs> naturalistic kind of like trying to interrupt and trying to get the story in then turns into like a second 10 minute monologue that follows that one up and so it's just like it's like the movie really like we've got to have we've got so much so many different things to clear up oh and then there's like a flamel who's like <laughs> it just like shows up as, i don't know it's so weird there's it's like the thing is it's not even as if this is like adapting an 800 page book where you're like man all these it feels like an 800 page book that's like, the thing this it's is like, like you lay miserable with all of these if you've read that book there's like so many characters are swirling around and they, they all they, they all kind of interact and we and you know come in and go yeah. like it's it feels like a novel and that's the thing like you could it would still be a problem but it would be a if not more easily forgiven more easily understood where you're like man you're just attached to these subplots screenwriter like it's a screenwriter adapting her own source you just couldn't cut it but like this is an original screenplay it's like you had all of the power you could create whatever you want like there was nobody forcing i, I your... think she she wrote this in her head as a novel and couldn't figure out how that, to tell this story that may be it and it's, it just... and it's only for like this will be the only um you know the only telling of this story in existence now and i think like and the thing is like I think like she so clearly loves each and every one of these people because like I think one of the greatest examples of th in this film is Bunty, like Newt's assistant, who is pretty much an irrelevant character here. Apparently, she's going to be a main character in the next film. Okay, I, I have no problem with that. But like th their interactions are really cute, and she has this big crush on him. Like, but a normal film would never have that character. But Rowling clearly loves this character so she wants uh, so she makes this one single scene she makes her feel like she's going to be a, a big character in the film she never shows up again it's so, like she does that for every little side character she creates she puts everything she has into it and the the same with lita or uh uh yusuf i believe is yusuf kama um same with uh, uh nicholas flamel or, or nagini like when those scenes are happening they feel like the most important scenes in the film even though, like, this character is irrelevant. You could cut them and nothing would change. So, like, she's giving everything she has to all these different things. I, I think, I think it's, for me, to me, it's, like, people call this movie cynical. I don't think so. Like, this feels, the problems in this film feel that they come from an over an overabundance of love and attachment to the story she's telling. Um, to the point where more discipline and a, a more a more cynical, ruthless, um, you, know, uh, you know, editor, I think, could have have made this labor of love superior and i actually have have things to say about some of your complaints and, they, and the thing is like, i don't disagree with anything you said but the funny thing is you mentioned you know the scene in the crypt where the revelations happen yes they are so freaking awkward in their placement and yes this is like this is so much just this is it's you're pausing the action for exposition it's against the rules of every screenwriting class <laughs> but i love it i kind of i really i like we uh, we mentioned this in um, Deathly Last Part 1 review, how 
when we enter into the tale of the three brothers, it's so it's so arresting. You kind of forget the movie around it, and that's how I feel with these sequences. Like, I in my mind as they start telling, like, oh my gosh, they're giving a speech, and when they end, I'm like, wait, but how is that relevant? But as it's happening, I'm like, the the movie ceases to exist. And I'm in this really haunting family tragedy with really good writing, really powerful acting, and I, my heart's being broken. Oh my gosh, the imagery of the sheet falling, just suspended in water. Like uh, we see it a couple times in the film, we don't know what it is. And then the revelation of what that actually is. That hit me. This is incredible, powerful storytelling. And Yates is in top form as he's telling the story of how this man entered into Yusuf's family when he was a child and ripped his, he had a beautiful life and he ripped it apart and destroyed it. And it set him on this life of vengeance. Like, this is, this is, this, I want to see the, you know, a tragedy about Yusuf and Lita and their families and this, this mad quest for vengeance and revenge and all the shame and guilt and self loathing that came out of that. That's an incredible story. Why is it here? I don't know. But when it's happening, I'm in it. It's so weird. Yeah. So the thing is, I'm not even really disagreeing with that. And I actually had the the thought, like the um, the the comparison to the tale of the three brothers, is something that I felt as well. Where I'm like, it's this thing where like the movie is happening, and then all of a sudden, it's like this whole other thing. But I feel like in Deathly Hallows Part One, like its frame, it makes more sense in the story. Oh, it, it's they, only a compliment in that the storytelling was so good. I forgot that it was irrelevant. Yeah. Um, but like the thing is why I can't, like, I, I think the direction of those sequences is legitimately great. Like, in fact, I had a lot, most of my complaints aren't really with Yates because I'm, I don't know. I've come to really, really love his directions. Like over the course of like this, these movies, he, he is so much of why I love this movie. Like if you had given this the exact same script to Mike Newell, I'd hate this movie. It's, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's like 95 like yes rolling did like the di- i think the dialogue is exceptional in this film and so like i think that's a lot that helps the acting but yates just brought it together for me yeah and so i love a lot of that scene it's just it's hard and this might just be like a thing with me it's like it's hard even within the scene to be fully lost because like the way the, the framing device itself just doesn't feel solid and sturdy enough to be holding up what I'm seeing now. And like, to go back to uh, Zoe Kravitz, uh, her, her performance there. Uh, one more thing. I, I One touch that I have to praise is when she finishes telling that story, we cut back to the book of the family tree and we see her flower wrapping around the branch of Corvus Lestrange and strangling it. Really quick cut, but just this beautiful evocative imagery of how she feels about herself. Um, go on. No, like that moment is like there's a lot. Like this movie's got some dark moments, and I really I was I mean, there for two, it. Two, two infants dies. <laughs> it's a there's a lot. Um, so but so an issue that I had though with it was that like. It, it does just feel like it's kind of coming from nowhere and like the performance style just feels different where like like I said there's there's a lot of 
what feels like a lot of like very naturalistic kind of performances and overlapping and her just her feeling like super raw in her performance whenever he's like recounting what's going on and then when it gets to her turn it feels like just the direction she was given changes or just you know the scene doesn't allow for that same kind of style because it just it then feels like she's so much more calm and composed and then like kneels on the ground it's like she had it's like the wizard version of a powerpoint presentation ready like it's like she's just so emotionally raw and distraught and then she just like she kneels down and she's like well i've told it it's like it she's told it several times is what it felt like as we just we move into movie flashback monologue like performance and it just i don't know that that scene just felt so weird and in, in, in a lot of different directions at once and so like the stories themselves i i think are very compelling like this everything that happened between them everything we see like the image of the the sheets like all of that is so strong and like again that just that premise the idea of like i just wanted a moment's rest and that became this defining thing it's it's super powerful it's just it feels so weird and so like there's there's an artificial ceiling on how much i can appreciate this just because of how it's framed yeah, I didn't really have that problem. I thought her acting was for me. It was like this. This is this is her. This has been her life. Her entire life has been, you know, wrapped around this sense of guilt and shame she feels for this crime she did, and that no one, no one else in the world knows. And previously, in the film we had we had the scene with it where she's talking with Dumbledore and he's telling her about confession um, and all of that. And I feel like this this is her taking that advice and just kind of letting out. And her composure is in that she's learned to live with the guilt and. Like this, it it's not raw anymore. It's just this is who she is. Yeah, I, I just the thing is to me what it felt like was one there was a some feeling of and I don't know maybe it's just maybe this is just a weird perception that I had and it's not really fair, but there was some sense of like rehearsal that it felt like to me, and and two like it's that it's that, this, that that can happen with the eight sometimes like the the stillness he he strives for can sometimes feel a little contrived. Thank you, poor, poor Bonnie Wright. Uh, like, like, that kind of well, sometimes happened. I would, I would not say that this is to to that extent, um, but like it also, it did just feel like like it's this thing that she just you know it, he's talking to her about the value of con confession and like that's just not there at all for she like you get the feeling that this just this thing hasn't been confessed, and so. I don't know, to me, I wish they would have either have leaned into one of either extreme of just like letting her just pour her out as a performer here or going even more like numb with the telling of it. But I don't know. It just, it felt weird because before the emotion that she should have there would be kind of the same emotion she would have in correcting this other story going on. Yeah, let's continue talking about her because I think Zoe Kravitz is incredible, and this this character is, is like it. If I had to pick a pick a character in film that was like to for the word haunted, I think this is one of them. And that, that like she is she is haunted. We we have the entire film, and like she talks, we hear about her brother's death, and we don't know what happened, but it's clearly defining for her. And I think the performance is great, and. and 
she's one she's she's one of those characters that is kind of irrelevant in hindsight um aside from this is the movie is so hard to talk about because <laughs> uh, there's so many threads you can't talk about one thing without accidentally talking about three other subplots yeah so if if i had to say what this film was about i'd say it's about you know battle lines being drawn essentially you have a lot of free age a whole like a whole host of free agents and plus people people who already have like like thesis who have their loyalties but they're being tested and so you have all these different you know free and already you know tied up agents floating around going through their own stories all coming toward this final conclusion where each one has to make a choice of where they will stand in the coming essentially wizard world war um, so like that seems to be the central thread. Then there's another thread running through, which feels like it's about you know guilt and shame and self-loathing. Everybody seemed to have like a lot of trauma in this, and that really comes through. Yeah. So you have Lita, Lita, who she thinks she killed her brother. Uh, Tina is trying is trying to find credence because she told you know, she told him in the previous film we'll protect you and then he got killed by the ministry and she, she you know, she's trying to you know make that guilt right um Dumbledore what happened with Ari you know he's haunted by what happened with Ariana um Yusuf he's trying to you know, to 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 fix heal the shame of his fa- of what happened to his family and he's very angry you what I really do like about this is it's not just like the typical like you could have had the same stuff on paper and get the direction wrong. And it's like, I, I'm avenging the honor of my family. Like, it's just kind of a typical thing, but you really get like, even in that scene where I have all those problems with like different, like shared monologues and stuff, you get that kind of like a, just an anger, like a, a long standing anger. But not even at you. It's at the other guy that I have to. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I have to kill you. But I have to kill you because it's yeah, like, like there's this angry. Like it's like angry at the situation, the circumstances. But it's like a resigned kind of like. Mm-hmm. I'm mad. I'm dead inside. Yeah, like, I'm kind of. It's there, just there's a great Shakespearean tragedy about like just the weird circumstances. Like no, he the guy you think he is is dead. He's died because I switched out these babies. It's, it feels like some kind of like late uh, 1800s classic novel where it's just they get weirdly convoluted and stuff. Um, so like yeah, there's that, that 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 sense of guilt and shame also seems to be kind of pervading the film, and that's where Lita fits in. Um, but, and if I had to choose her being in or out, I would prefer her being in just cause I love her performance. But I think what makes her feel irrelevant is that they kill her at the end of the film. And it doesn't feel like she had a complete resolution. Like she had confession. She had the first step in result in resolving her character arc. And you would assume in the next film, she would then, you know, she, she's rid herself of this burden. Now she's going to find purpose and they killed her right as she was taking the first step towards resolving her arc. And that's why she feels so weird and irrelevant in the film. Um, I, I don't understand the choice to kill her. Like, like character-wise, her sacrificing herself for new and thesis, that makes sense logically, but from a, a drama structure perspective, I'm really confused as to what Rowling was thinking. Yeah, because I feel like lack of resolution can be a choice, but it doesn't necessarily feel like a choice in this instance, you know? Yeah, like, if she chose death rather than confession, it's like this grand tragedy of this person who couldn't let go of her guilt. But coming right on top, on the end of confession, 
feel strange. And continue on this 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 thread of guilt and shame. We have Dumbledore. Um and I think I think um Jude Law is I don't think we realize just how great he is in this in this role. Uh, the, the the amount of things he's doing. Like first off, just the actor, he has a twinkle in his eye, which is something that either an actor just has, or you know, either they have they have it or they don't. And Dumbledore needs a twinkle in his eye, and Jude Law just has that. And the dialogue that Rowling gives him in every sequence, whether he's talking to Newt, who is an ally, or to um the head of magical law law enforcement, who is choosing to be who he wishes an ally but is choosing to be an adversary i love that he ne- he never answers a question he's always kind of dancing around them and like newt newt see- sees through all the bs like he can deal with it um but even when he's dealing with it, even even as he's calling dumbledore out on his bs like you know they asked me if i said if they, if you sent me to new york i said you hadn't even though you had <laughs> it's like yeah and he like I know you sent me there, but even that, it, as all that's happening, Dumbledore is never admitting it. He's just kind of, he, it's it's so much fun watching how these interactions play out, or when he when he's um talking with uh, the the uh, head Auror, and he talks to you know, and he asks him, "We know he's working on your orders." And instead of answering, he says, "Well, if you had the pleasure to teach Newt, you know he's not a great follower of orders." That's not an answer. Like he, he's doing that the whole time. I love that. Yeah, and he has. We talked about how there's that kind of. Tony Stark thing where when he's talking to you, you have his, you, he is locked in on you, but also he's not only, he's thinking about 17 other things. And there's like, he switches on and off. Like when he looks at a person, he focuses on them. And then when he's looking away, you can tell, see he's back in his own plans. It's, 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 just, it's playing intel, like a higher in level of intelligence in, in a really interesting way. I mean, I, I think the thing that I latch onto the most is just that idea of. It's not, it's not just about getting a good actor. It's about getting somebody with that thing that you either do or don't have, which is that like that twinkle. To me, it's like Jude Law is on the list of actors for me that's like, I'm not convinced that it's possible for them to ever be the problem in a movie they're in. <laughs> like he, to me, like he's just so effortlessly likable and charming and I don't think he knows how to give a bad line reading like I just don't whatever you're gonna have him say and so and you know he doesn't he doesn't actually have like bad lines in this so that's you know that helps but he shows up and you know you've got we already have all the history with Dumbledore that we have we're like man who like how can you kind of capture that but he shows up and he's so pleasant and he's got that same kind of like really sharp playful Dumbledore wit to him and he's able to carry that so well like and th- that the scene of him with the the head order I'm like I just I could just watch this for forever like he's just he's so charismatic in a very lovable way um but yet the the other thing that they they capture as well with this performance is that idea of like you don't feel like you're being shortchanged in conversation, but like whenever he's asking Newt to do something, you're like, you need, like Newt doing this is key for like eight other plans to work. Mm-hmm. Like you get this feel like it, whenever 
you know, because he's like, oh, well, never mind. And then he like, he has that, the glove give back the card. Like he's like, he knows when to pretend to be uninterested and then when to give the last nudge, how to say what, because it's all, all of these things are interlocked. And he's doing all of these things be, for specific reasons because he can't do blah, blah, blah. You know, you find out about the blood pack. It's just, I don't know, all of the, all of, all of like the higher tier aspect of Dumbledore is there with the kind of, what a good guy, like what a great guy to chit chat with, you know? As, but I think the thing that really elevates the performance is the 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 grief I think that's underlying all of it. Um, there's, a, there's a real sadness to his his version of Dumbledore, and th- this is where I think you know being a, a Harry Potter fan comes in because like it's I don't it's mentioned he lost his sister, but knowing the story of what happened to uh, Ariana Dumbledore, it, it you know it, it makes it so much more. And I, I love what like the fact that he. This he was on course to become Minister of Magic and you know probably the head of whatever you know the the Wizarding United Nations. That was his destiny. You know that, but then choices he made led to this this tragedy, and he and he retreated to Hogwarts and spent the rest of his life as a teacher, and that is baffling to the rest of the world. And I think like the, the way he plays that sadness is like. Like he realized his own, he realized his limits, his own flaws and his weaknesses. And even though he still tries to run the world from his school, he's keeping himself in the school because he fears his own arrogance. He fears his own power. So that, so he's kind of living his life in, in a, like almost in penance, in high, in kind of in, in anonymity in this school, even though he can never truly be anonymous. Like it, it's just, it's just a fascinating character in that regards. Yeah. I, the, the character is great. The performance is great. The thing that really, the the big misstep to me is, one, I feel like this was the perfect opportunity to have really propped up Deathly Hallows Part 1 and its lack of addressing Ariana. I, if if people are getting monologues with flashbacks. I mean, the next movie is called Secret of, Secret of Dumbledore, or Secrets of Dumbledore, so yes. I'm assuming we'll get there. We've also flipping got Creedence Dumbledore we got to deal with so i have a, i have a theory about uh, about uh, aurelius dumbledore but we'll get to that go on uh i'm already hoping whatever your theory is true instead of it's actually just being aurelius i i find him a very interesting character and the movie has all of these different people with this traumatic histories and stuff the, his character is is Part of why I wish we could have trimmed so much of the excess around this movie and made more of it about like about him and his background because like there's a past with him and Grindelwald there's a past with him and Ariana there's all of these like he's heavily involved in a lot of aspects of this and I feel like we could have gotten have you seen the, have have you seen the trailer for the more, next film yes he seems to be much more of an active character yeah, and, one, and yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to that, especially now knowing like, hey, I'll get to go and see this. Oh, in the speaking of which, um, our run continues. Uh, like the yeah. day before, we're, like th- this, this is going to be a couple weeks out when we actually release it. But the day before we recorded this episode, the Secrets of Dumbledore trailer came out after the film had been delayed for two years, and it just this keeps happening. Big news, co- big news comes out for a series whenever we cover it. So, hey, if there's a series being delayed yeah. that you want to come out soon, <laughs> we'll cover it. Um, uh, go on, man. What do I need to? What do I need to just be like? We gotta do. We gotta do. Man this. from Uncle. 
Although it didn't happen. We did cover it. Boo, whatever. Yeah. Wow. But basically I just like, I think this was a great opportunity because I love, I love fixing the problems of franchise movies and other films being like, Oh, remember that thing that didn't work? Let's make that work now. And because I'm a completionist, I don't ever just pick out a movie. Or in in Rolling's case, you remember that thing that worked really well? Do you want to make it work even better? Exactly. Like, I love doing that. And so to me, the lack, like, I think Ariana is a genuinely, like, it's a big factor in Deathly Hallows. And it's a big factor with Dumbledore there. And it just, that scene feels super short, super, super shortchanged in Deathly Hallows Part 2. And so on, this would have been an opportunity to where like that would have been less if that scene played out as if it's referring to an element in a movie we've already seen that scene with Aberforth is like it just it does not do justice I mean obviously it doesn't do justice to the book but I don't think it even does justice to what it really should be doing in that moment in the movie but Man, if they really let the Ariana thing breathe, since we're already handing out visual flashbacks to people in this movie, like a legitimate, like let him get a flashback recounting Ariana as a means for him to try to let, like draw Letta into confiding into him. This goes to what Ryan was saying in the last episode was that this, these movies are sequels to the books more than the film. Like this film is really expecting you with, with double says, I lost a sister we're supposed to get that flashback ourselves, you know? Um, uh, but that, that line, which is, you know, it's never too late to free yourself. I'm told a great weight lifted. Regret is my constant companion. Don't let it be yours. Um, and it's like, you freaking hypocrite double tour, but also it's very good advice. And I like what that says about you. Dumbledore's empathy is so fascinating. Just the way he could just connect with any character and their pain where they're at. Um, and, you know, make them feel like they're the most important person in the world to him at that moment. Uh, it's really powerful. Where to go after that? <laughs> There's so much happening. Where does the movie go? <laughs> All sorts uh, of where doesn't it go? Uh, let's, let's move on to the main characters. So uh, there aren't there aren't really arcs, you know, so to say. Like this film again, anyway, it's more about the overall plot and kind of just this weaving feel and tone. Like, if I were to say, like, what is Newt's arc? Well, he does have an arc. He actually, is, you know, he goes from wanting not, not wanting to join a side to choosing a side. Like, there's that arc, but it's not the 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 little arcs that happen are much smaller than traditional ones. This is kind of like tangentially related to that about like the, there's a lot of plot and not a whole lot of arcs. Something else that I feel about this, and this is another thing that I kind of felt between both films, is it feels like both films are wanting to be super plot heavy and lore important while also being like it's about the love of beasts (laughs) it's like there's there's (laughs) a a weird like kind of we've got fetch quests we've got like oh here's here's an entire scene it could have been a short film about this this beast thing um and sometimes it really works and then sometimes it feels like it's like we're doing this because it's called fantastic beasts and so mm-hmm. like the scene with the water but I monster love the beasts. <laughs> I think I I probably preferred the beasts in this. I love the rhino scene. Although, so I do have to say, I'm not always into like some of the humor they use with the way he wrangles the beasts, but uh-huh. I love the beasts themselves. 
and I messaged you and Ryan that like the cat lion dragon thingy is like my favorite Harry the Potter teleporting Chinese dragon kitty is yeah. the scientific term okay Zawu oh my I gosh love that so much it it's one of those things where it's like this is why I watch fantasy movies um, just the, the, like the, both both the effects and the designs in this film seem much stronger. But that creature, we have that tail that's like three times as long as its body so is constantly swishing out of focus in the background. Has that massive mane, and the the legs are just too long for its body, and the elbows are like reaching back up past its back. It's so like when it's trying to like hug him with this weird elongated elbow and kind of like getting. It, like Newt interacting with it as just being a cat is just adorable, um, but then when it goes into its teleportation mode, that is one of the coolest visuals, just I've ever seen. The way the way its mane flares out and light, like each each hair on its mane flares out and just like with fire as each strand coming out, and when it jumps and like space is folding around it in slow motion. It's like, this This is why I watch movies, to, to see wild things that I could never have imagined. Um, and it's just a cute kitty. Like, it, it's wonderful. Like, it's weird because there's almost an element of, like, there's, like, some cartoonishness in the design. And so it's like, does this, like, how does this look in the real world? But whenever people are near it, it's like, but they got the texture so right. Like that thing looks so real that like, despite the fact that it there's cartoonish proportions and design, I still believe it's occupying the same space as these other people. It, it'd be like if you took like Sully from Monsters, Inc. and put him in a movie, but got, it's like you make it so believable that like put Eddie Redmayne Eddie Redmayne next to me. You're like, despite the cartoonish design, it looks so believable that I believe we're just touching these weird cartoonish proportion things. And that's how I felt with this. Like I, and I, I say cartoonish in like a positive way in this case because I, again, I love this design so much. Uh, and so to like to see to see this super unique, cool design looked also like just so well executed the way it involved like interacts with the environments the fact that it looks like people can touch it the, oh man the, that that creature is used really well within the plot i think yeah. in a very harry potter way then we have uh, baby nifflers like they don't do much but it's baby nifflers <laughs> the, the squeaky toy sound when it bounces off the wall after being shot off the champagne bottle <laughs> it's uh that, that is cinema um we got the, the, the Matagots, which are these black hairless cats with giant glowing blue eyes, and they multiply when attacked. Ugh, just that's, that's that's nightmare fuel. This, that brings us to Nagini, who's another kind of a fantastic creature. Um, like I don't even mind the notion of Credence picking up another, you know, outcast who has a monster inside them. Like that fits that that idea fits in the kind of the film thematically and character wise. I don't understand on. Like usually there, are, even if I don't understand a choice that is made, I can okay, I can see how it fits in the film. Like if you were telling this, if the if the author thought they were telling this kind of story, you can make it work. I can't make heads or tails of this choice at all to make uh this this per, this woman the same as Voldemort's snake. Like, cause 
she's a good person. Like, and they could have, if at the end of this film, she chose to join Grindelwald, like, oh, she's actually secretly evil. But no, she stays on the good side. Like, she's a good person. Why is she the evil dude snake? It's so strange. I mean, obviously, there's something that's going to happen later down the road in the series. But like, in this movie, it's super weird. It's the same feeling I got when watching First Class and seeing what they did with Mystique. Hmm. Where you're like, it, it's just trying to then rethink about the other films in light of the prequel. You're like, that doesn't work. It but just, at least she's a bad guy at the end of the film. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, not to turn this into X-Men, but even there, it's like, she acts like a total stranger to Charles that, like, in the whole original trilogy, like, in no way, shape, or form is there any, like, even mild hint at, like, who she apparently was to him before but like in this case it's like so now this haunted like you're i'm supposed to believe that you're this just devoid of like nagini had no real i mean it was just a an evil snake that it was just an extension of old just a snake just a snake yeah it's just hey hey kill that thing okay bite it like that's what it was ryan told me ahead of time he's like there's a think of whatever like the reverse uh riddle tom uh, a tom riddle diary like that's what it is where you're like oh that makes so much sense this is like it's like there's gonna be a reveal where you go oh but why and as soon as they said nagini i was like oh no why mm-hmm. uh, so going into the rest of the characters like this is why even as i'm i can agree with almost all your criticisms and have many of my own I still really love this movie. I think it's the characters. Like I still, I still love Newt. I think he's one of the most unique lead characters in a blockbuster. Um, just love, you know, he's just, he's awkward. It's just, just, he's so different. Um, then his, his, the kindness, the, just every scene where he's with animals, I think, um, Eddie Redmayne is so good at playing just the connection that he can build with each and every one of them. It's in, like, almost instantly. Um, like this is part of his nature. I think that's really well done. Um, <laughs> there are no strange creatures, only blinkered people. Um, and he's still like, I, he, he found a way to like love other humans in the first film, but he's still trying to maintain himself as a free agent. Like, you know, with a line, you know, I don't do sides. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be drawn into this larger conflict. Um, even, even as he like, and you have that line from um, Dumbledore says, you know, you know why I admire you, Newt? Because more than any, you know, perhaps more than any other man I know, you do not seek power or popularity. No. You simply ask, is a thing right in itself? And if it is, you do it no matter the cost. And so, like, even as he always, he doesn't want to be involved, Dumbledore knows that he is a, a good principled man and will always do the right thing. And so he just takes Newt and puts him in the way of trouble so that when the trouble happens, he knows Newt being a good man will do the right thing. And, and, and I forgot to mention that speaking of Dumbledore, I love that at the center of this, this film, we have these two incredible manipulators and, and there, there is a similarity between how they work. Like they both, um, they both have a really deep understanding of human nature um, and I think like, I think Dumbledore could very easily become like Grindelwald and have a much more cold, calculating type of manipulation. And, and, and I think 
But what's always holding Dumbledore back is he has a really strong sense of morality and a genuine love for people. Whereas, so even even though Dumbledore and Grindelwald use almost the exact same tactics when they're manipulating someone, uh, when the, when it's happening, Dumbledore loves people. Whereas when you watch Grindelwald, this man has no humanity in that regard. Like, the moment he stops talking to a person, they cease to exist for him. And it's, it's all about what can you do for me? It's fascinating. Like that is the road that Dumbledore could have gone down, because you know, because of his skills, because of his talent at manipulation. But he's able to kind of hold it back. And with Grindelwald, we see what Dumbledore could have become if Ariana hadn't died and kind of you know given him that shock, and to to and and made him reconsider his life. What also really works is that they're able to borrow from heavily established aspects of Dumbledore's character from Harry Potter. Yeah, where it's like, I mean, we talked about that with his relationship with Harry a lot in the later movies, where it's like, there is a level of manipulation. There's a level, like, you're putting the, pe- the right people in the right places, saying the right things to make the right things happen, but you never for a second doubt his love for Harry. You know, you, he's, his kindness never feels superficial or simply a means. It's like, even amidst all of what the, the shady aspects of it, you're not questioning his motives or his love for the people he's involving. And so, like, that is Dumbledore to us at this point in the series, so that they're able to, like, to use that within the specific plot here, I think is cool. Yeah, the thing is, like, he's the one who coined the term for the greater good. So that is how he thinks in his nature. But he's able to curtail that, whereas Grendelwald is the natural conclusion of the for their greater good type of thinking. Yes, yeah, so back to Newt. I just I love watching like his the sense of just competency that that Eddie Redmayne radiates as he's going through like the scene where he's um he goes to the scene of the of the fair the night before, and he just goes he lets the Niffler out and he does this really incredible spell. To, to that that recreates the night the the events of the night before, and he's just going through and other, another scene like when he's doing the, the cool spell too. Yeah, like he has he holds up his uh, wand and it turns into like an ear horn, um, or when he's pulling the the squid thing out of uh, Yusuf's eye and he puts his wand in his mouth and holds it like a flashlight. It's just I love that. There's something about that little bit where you're like, ah, this guy knows his stuff. It's just little touches of like character and humanity that, that Redmayne f- and, and you know puts into the character he just he feels like a real person to me I love watching him and that kind of brings us to uh, Jacob and Tina I'm not Tina Queenie other person Jacob and Queenie um, <laughs> a lot of characters and I, I love I love the scene of the introduction where the, it, it, it going between comedy and something very dark and disturbing <laughs> but just uh, when uh, Newt walks up and um Jacob has the broken face and he just drops it. Hey! <laughs> and he's just an absolute dope. He's like, I'm married. He's like, yo, we're getting married. Hey, I'm marrying Jacob. And he throws the water in his face. Um, but then as we, she pulls the spell off of him and they kind of go into the argument 
and we're, and it's just like pure drama and he is really really good and she's like you would be a coward like if I'm a coward you're and he holds himself back just crazy no I didn't say it you didn't have to and like oh, can you imagine being in a relationship with someone who heard every first thought you had before you filtered yourself like that's a, such a cool rolling concept here and, and after she leaves he's standing alone in the street I didn't say nothing. It's like, I can't, you know, I can't win. And, and, and just the idea of Queenie taking him and you know, give, probably, give, I guess, giving him a love potion, it's both incredibly dark, but also feels real. If human beings had the ability to have, you know, to, to bend other people to their will, a lot of people would do that. And not even the most evil people, just like, People you know, and it's it's horrible. It's it's disturbing, but it's also it's so believably human. Yeah, and I, I just love that, that that such a dark concept is just kind of thrown in here. But yeah, Jacob and Queenie, really fascinating relationship they have here. So I actually really like that, and I I thought like, whenever it was revealed, I was like, whoa, that's that's a big like a betrayal in a way, like to like to override somebody like that. But then for her to be like, well, I did it because you're a coward, because you won't commit to this. Like, it was super, super compelling. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because like, it's, it's everything he wanted, but his better judgment wasn't letting him do it. So it's, it's, and so yeah. in her eyes, it's like, I'm freeing you to do the thing you want to do. Mm-hmm. Like, which is almost like the moral justification she can give for herself, which is like, he, only, he wants to do this. I'm not making him do it like against... His, his will and that um, against his desire. I'm just releasing this particular inhibition that he only has for my sake. You know? So like you can understand why somebody could talk themselves into that. It ends up giving me the, like, the same kind of criticism I have with, with Dumbledore's thing where it's like, it's interesting. I wish we could cut out other things to, to make more because the, the problem to me is that like, it feels like we're seeing the middle part of, of like a really interesting relationship drama where it's like, you know, the, the ending of the last one with her in the bakery and everything to go from that to this, where it's like, there's all, there's already so much history at the introduction of like, presumably they've been together they've been through a lot then he thinks this like well now we can then they argue about that so she in a way i love that kind of come back coming back a year later and everything's reset a little bit that's always fun to me i i I really do like that whenever it's the central thing because then i feel like you get to let it breathe a lot through other conversations yeah but i don't feel like this because again this was something that i really did like but I don't feel like as interesting as it is, something this interesting didn't end up getting its due. I don't think it got enough runtime. Um, yeah, Queenie's kind of done so I, dirty by the film, I think. Um, yeah. it's, well, it's super weird because, like, I don't know, I feel like if, um, if they were either a much, like, either the main focus in a different movie or just had way less screen time to have to share... You would have let you would have let it run longer because I think part of part of the my, at least my issue with introducing them in that way of like all this stuff has already happened 
is you get all of this craziness, all of this like this argument and this drama, and they're like calling each other coward and crazy and this and that. And then she leaves, and then he's immediately like, no, like I can't believe Queenie left me. And so like his character from then on is like, I've got to get back to Queenie. And it's like, if that had happened in the middle point of something, I would have loved it. Like, have, okay, have you seen, I don't want to spoil it, have you seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? No. Okay, well, they, never mind. It's the, the idea of like something being like this big, like this big conflict in a relationship. And for something like this, when something goes wrong for the person to like to drop any sense of bitterness and ex- accept the person, like, oh no, no, like, I'm after, like, we had this huge argument and now I can't find her. And all of a sudden, not a single, not a single negative thing she ever said about him means thing anymore. And it's like, I've got to get her. And it, it just feels like that was a lot of stuff to just happen right then. And then everything, like, anytime they have as characters after that is basically just them looking for each other. And so you don't get to develop it because they're just looking for each other. Yeah. I do love that both him and Newt are just these lovelorn puppies kind of wandering through Paris, like the scene where they're at the restaurant waiting for Yusuf to show up. And I love the, the, the feather underneath the glass bowl. It's like poking at the glass. That's really cool effect. But like Newt's kind of staring off into space, thinking about Tina and, and Jacob's there just kind of, talking to himself about Queenie and neither one's paying any attention to the other one. Uh, it's like that that kind of energy that, that it has. Uh, but oh, back to Jacob. <laughs> he's so, he's, I find him so funny. Um, you know, <laughs> he's like, you know, Newt, it's great to see you. Where are we? London. Ah, London. I always wanted to go here. <laughs> so he walks out. I'm, okay, that part did genuinely make me laugh. Just his, his anger. I always wanted to go there. Or when he's going down to the basement, he's like, the bird comes up and looks at him. Yeah, I've got my own problems. <laughs> and, it's just like oh, uh, his reaction to the porky. I, I didn't like that porky note. For some, like, I, I didn't find myself endeared to him as much as you and Ryan did in the first one. But I don't know if like it was two movies is what it took for me or if it was some sort of change. I, I genuinely like found myself like really laughing with the character in this one. <laughs> when you would uh, Newt talking about you, know, you just say the first thing that comes to you in the moment. She has eyes like a salamander. Well, don't say that. <laughs> just don't, don't say, say nothing, nothing about, about no salamanders. <laughs> or the payoff for that is after you know, Newt and Tina meet and she storms off. You didn't mention salamanders, did you? No. Well, so chase after her. <laughs> He's just, he's so, Dan Fogler is amazing. Just the joyful, ha! when uh, Pickett picks the lock in the sewer. Uh, he's so much fun. Um, just, if it were only, if only Newt and Jacob were amazing, I would, I would still kind of love these movies. And just to talk about Newt, um, I will say he is a character that I do find myself like more like well i i actually i really liked him in the first one the only thing is i I already mentioned this i don't some some of the 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 humor with it doesn't always go over with me super well like i want to see his version of like 
interacting with Beast be like the wizarding version of like Steve Irwin, where like he makes it look super cool. And like the the goofiness of that. And it looks like we're definitely going to be getting more of that goofiness with uh, Secrets of Dumbledore. That doesn't... Swivelly like you. Yeah. It, that doesn't always work for me. But whenever it's just like, whenever it's just the conversational news, I love Red Man here. Like, the, the, like there's so many, the amount of scenes, somebody did a tally, the amount of scenes of him holding a real conversation with somebody else while also deeply locked in on some animal thing like where he's like just even in the flashback and shout out to the the younger cast for him and Letta in the flashback they look oh that kid is amazing they to me they both look and sound exactly like uh Zoe Kravitz and I think I think they might have overdubbed the voices oh okay well that would be why particularly the boy I'm not I won't swear to that but I think that might be the case, or at least done a mix of the two. But the the kid who plays uh, young Newt, his mannerisms, he's got it down perfectly. Yeah, like that scene, I'm like, holy cow! Like, y'all film, y'all just filmed this like 20 years ago. Something that happened. Uh huh. And what what you were saying about the way, I feel like he's better at conversation when he's doing something else. Like his, like it's like his awkwardness yes. fades away. And his his competency in what he's doing, you know, gives him that immense confidence boost. Um, whereas, like, if he was just trying to make small talk with a person, he could never Which do it. Which is such a human thing, you know. Like this desire for there to be something, something to interact with, so that like, you know where to look, you know what to do with it, like you know what to do, and it frees you up to just have a conversation. And like seeing that in him, it feels so believable. And I also do find him like a really, really charming kind of character. And so I'm I'm definitely like two thumbs up on Newt and we'll probably go into the next one optimistic just because like he has now become a character that I do enjoy like sitting in front of. Yeah, going on, uh, we have Tina. Um, I think she's done a little short shrift by the film. I like everything she's in except for some of the plot mechanics. Um, It's weird that I, I don't, it seems that like from the trailer that she's almost entirely cut out of Secrets of Dumbledore. I don't know what's up with that at all. Yeah, I'm nervous about that. Like, I not, I'm not happy about that. I'm, I'm sure they'll come up with a good reason for her to be gone. And she is in the official cast list, so I'm sure she shows up at some point. I'm guessing it's a scheduling issue. Um, it was shot during COVID and all that, but I'm not happy about that. That said, <laughs> another critique would be... um. The whole subplot over her confusion about Newt being engaged to Lita is just silly um, and also unnecessary because we've already established Newt wants to go back to travel, but he can't because the 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 board the Ministry of Magic is punishing him for his loyalty to Dumbledore. Like that's established. So if she has a reason to be mad mad at him, is he promised to come back and it's been a year and he and she's heard, hasn't heard anything from him? Like that's. If if you want to start with her angry at him, perfect. This whole contrivance it, it could of, be the whole the the uh, Harry upset at Ron and Hermione because they did you know send him letters. Yeah, exactly. Um, so th- that's on and and it's it's all done explained away almost immediately, so it doesn't even matter. It's just strange. <laughs> yeah, the thing is, so I, for me, she really was done kind of dirty in this one because it doesn't feel like that's explained away super quickly. Like we. 
that whole issue hangs over the movie for well it's explained very quickly the moment it's actually addressed well after like i don't okay there's to me if i were to ever teach a a class on screening i would include all of my pet peeves as hard and fast rules uh even if they're <laughs> not hard and fast rules i just teach them as that the whole like the scene the whole like about Lena. Oh no, it's fine. Like no, no. What I mean is, like no, no. I understand. Blah blah blah. We gotta do this. Like well, no. What I'm trying to say. Is, like, Although, there's a, there's a line that I love. Like, yeah, just as I said, I'm very happy for you. No, please don't be happy. No, I obviously I want you to be, but I I don't want you because you think I'm happy because I'm not happy. <laughs> like I love that that little monologue. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Right. Just the the whole like, I couldn't like, just. You're not legally obligated to stop talking because somebody else did. Just shout, blurt out, "I'm not engaged to let it." Like, and it does. It's not as if that doesn't go beyond one scene. All of that is contained in one scene. But stuff like that irks me to know. And I'm like, "Oh my gosh, just say it." <laughs> but to me, it like that kind of does define their relationship with each other for a long time in this movie. Like. But we, then, then they immediately go and have, I think, the the best scene of the relationship. That's the thing. Like, whenever like she says like a salamander, like that being the final payoff to that, I thought. <laughs> I, I love where he's like, I, I, your eyes are like, like what? I'm not supposed to say. <laughs> like, and the, the fact that she read his book and took in what he, how much he loved salamanders that she could put two and two together as he describes salamanders eyes without actually telling her she's the one who says it it's it's super sweet. It's so sweet and so i don't know like i feel like we were kind of robbed of you know more and i mean to make a moment like that work you have to have some level of conflict but it's just to me i was this was like the typical kind of like why are professional writers writing this conflict still where it's like, oh, I saw this, and because you're right, it's it's like it's legitimate Hallmark Christmas movie kind of. You overheard or misunderstood or something, and that defines the conflict for way too much of the runtime. And it's like it's it, it's not it's just not fun to watch. Like it's not enjoyable. It's not compelling. And so every every scene that's kind of framed around that conflict, I'm just like, I just I love good drama. I love being made uncomfortable if it's really good. But this is just like. I don't know. Every time that was continued to be a thing, I'm just like, this is really annoying. <laughs> just clarify this and move on. I'm not getting anything out of it. It's not making the movie better. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more char- big character before you get to uh, Grindelwald is um, Theseus Commander, played by Callum Turner. I like him. Like, is he nece- entirely necessary? I don't know. I, like, I like that we have a main character inside, like the official government that conflict of loyalties that's happening i think the actor is really good um i think he, he he's believable as a brother as a brother with a very awkward relationship with newt yeah and that kind of test of loyalties where you have dumbledore on one side trying to tell him you know, to, to follow his conscience and do the right thing and you have you know his superiors on the other side i think that's a good conflict i think it, it looks like it's gonna be explored even deeper in the next film so like, i don't have a lot to say about it but i i like his presence yeah the the biggest thing that i have to say is just what you said before where it's like you i buy that brother relationship like i really it's not the typical like oh my brother and i not on good terms. 
terms at all. And, <laughs> Thesis, he's an aura and a hugger. Yeah, like it's to me, it's like you completely buy the familial love and the familial tension in a very like. And I love that it's him. He's him. he's the one reaching out to Newt, and Newt's the one who's just like, I don't know how to handle this. Yeah, he could have been. He keeps backing he off. Been the, like talking about like just like why do screenwriters still do this? He could have been like the annoying bad guy. Like to me, it could have so easily slipped into that. But the whole time, I'm like, I don't know. I kind of like the Asus's vibe. You know, he's just. Like, whenever he's chasing them, and, you know, Newt gets the whole, like, that may have been the happiest moment of my life. Like, it's a fun moment, but at the same time, I'm like, I, I don't know, kind of like, he's, he's just trying to catch up with you. I don't I don't read any Ill, Ill intent from him. So, and, like, whenever he's there, I, he has a line that I really love, where he's like, oh, I should have written it down. Whenever he and all the orders are there, he's like, it's something like, we cannot be what he... What, it's not illegal to hear him speak. You no, know, mm. I do really like that. But it's the, we cannot be what he says we are. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. That line was super good to me. And so w- what I love about it is which, like, which, show, which shows he's listening. Like, his superior sent him there with the orders, arrest everyone. And he's making the choice to listen to Dumbledore. Yeah. And take the higher path. And and so what I really love about the character and his, like, his little moments is that you both, you get, like he, I, to me, he looks very young. Like you get a sense of like youthfulness from him, but you also get to me with like a level of like believable maturity as well. And so it's it's a small role, but I actually really like it. Mm-hmm. Now we get to Grindelwald, and you, I haven't heard a single word from you. What you think about him? I adore him, so I'm kind of terrified. What do you think? I really like him. I wish. Oh, good. We got, oh, good. Yeah. So this is what our friendship would hinge on. <laughs> so I, I, the, redu- the the design is ridiculous, but I kind of love it. It is like it is so extra. Like, <laughs> not only does he have this like really weird modern spiky haircut, not only is he super pasty, not only does he have the whitest blonde hair, also he has different colored eyes. It's like it was Johnny Depp's suggestion, actually. Of course it was. I mean, he he wanted Johnny. Uh, he wanted uh, Jack Sparrow to not have a nose. Like, of course it was a suggestion. I can also. I think we can also presume that he argued and lost a fight to get uh, Grindelwald to have like eight different scarves at the same time. But I like his scars. His scarves are scars. Scarves. Oh, I also like his facial scars. I like his uh, scars, but but. You know, the the classic Johnny Depp scarves could have really pulled this all together. <laughs> the fact that he can radiate such power through that ridiculous design is impressive. Like, his mustache just looks like Jack Frost. Like, it's, it's so <laughs> crazy to me. But also, I really, I think, you know, between this and Murder on the Orient Express, I really love, like, kind of, even though, like, especially in this one, he looks so extra- I really love subdued Johnny Depp, where it's like very calculated, very like I don't know. He's not he's not being like the eighth variation of Jack Sparrow. Like it's so nice to see him like that again. And so yeah, I the only I I wish we got to see more of his like deeper moving conversations with people and like how he wins them over. I like 
with respect to like two characters one and this kind of goes back to queenie which uh, just a couple things to say about queenie before we move on the sequence that i was talking earlier about like whenever you mentioned you know just the tone and mood at the beginning of this episode and i said there's a particular sequence when queenie is looking for them and she can't find them in the Mm. rain that scene is like yeah phenomenal to me i love that scene the, so- um, the sound design of her hearing the thoughts of every person yeah, around it's her. So like, that's one of those scenes where it's like, man, this, this by itself, like, you just you cut on either end and just like look at this scene by itself. What an incredible moment! And like, it really explains, I think, in a way, why she is such an oddball. Is you know, like she ha- she her experience of the world is so different from ours. And so, uh, but but um, so about him with Queenie though is I. I wish we got to see that interaction more. Like, if if this movie could have had one more, like, dwelt on her and Jacob's conflict and really flesh that out more and then have the conversation, like, really play out a strong conversation between Grindelwald and, and her, I feel like that would have gone... Yeah, because at, at this point, I feel like we, we don't even know, did he truly convince her or is she bewitched? Like... I don't. I was like, going to ask you it, that. The, the, her choice in the end comes is is so out of left field. Um, like yeah, I, I don't. I don't know why. Like they they can fix this. It, this is one of the problems that it's a problem now, but I think it could be sort of smoothed over by a sequel. They, you know, I'm sure there'll be a conversation between her and Jacob where she lays out what she what why she did what she did. But in the moment, I'm like, I'm I'm, I'm as incredulous as Jacob. Like. This doesn't feel. Did you, did you just not hear what he said? Yeah, it's, um, it's super weird. Where like when she's when she's like, you know, he's actually got good things to say, and like or, or whatever she says, and she seems really enthralled. To me, like there's a weird sense of like, okay, surely like there's some sort of curse on her, and so I was constantly waiting for that reveal. But then we even get the scene of like of her being like, ah, oh, he's not ready, blah blah, blah. like with her and him and Credence, where I'm like. Is this reveal going to happen? Are they waiting for the next movie for a reveal? Or is this just not, or like, is, is she, what's she uh, won over? I guess. Okay. I'm leaning towards Here's, it. Uh, I'm going to put some thoughts together. Uh, she obviously already doesn't fully respect Jacob and his wishes. She, she tried to bewitch him into marrying her. So like, she already has some issues in that on that front as far as, respecting his will in that regards and she had and she's also she's, she's kind of like a teenager where she has a very naive she feels like she has a very naive view of the world um and the problem between her that's keeping her from jacob is that the muggles rule and the wizards are terrified of them so in america they're keeping this wall of separation between them and that's what's keeping her from marrying jacob so it, i guess in her mind if grindelwald succeeds and wizards now benevolent, benevolently rule the world as you know, as the masters, she will then be free to marry Jacob. Like, that makes sense, but I feel like the rhetoric and hatred of muggles that Grindelwald is playing on would have come across her notice at some point um, that she'd realize it wouldn't be good for Jacob if this happened. Like, I, this, yeah, you see, as far as the, conver- the conversation, I wish the conversation between her and Grindelwald cover like had her raising this objective objection 
And he kind of smoothed it over and said, well, we're not really, we're going to treat them well. There's not going to be any kind of violence between us, like some kind of lie that could calm that fear. Because right now she just looks like an absolute idiot. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's exactly that, where it's like the, if she's doing this because she, she perceives that Grunewald could, could allow what she wants for her and Jacob to happen, then she is an idiot. It's like, what? Did you hear the speech? Are you hearing the rhetoric? Mm-hmm. Are you hearing like? And I, there, there's that moment in this, that moment in the speech, where he he says something about muggles, and Queenie is looking on enthralled, but Jacob caught it, and he's like, "Wait, what? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not liking this." Um, maybe like, like he as a muggle is like is seeing what he's actually saying, whereas Queenie as a wizard is kind of oblivious. I don't know. Like, There's interesting things to be said there. Like, it, it, in a segregated society, how you know one, how the, the dominant population might see something as far as like a, a persecuted, persecuted minority population, like the blindnesses and the blind sides. Like, there's interesting things to be explored there, but it's never, it's not dealt with, it's not given enough specificity to really uh, figure yeah. it out. And so the whole thing, like whenever she ultimately steps through, I'm like, whoa, that just, I'm usually all about applauding bold decisions, but that just felt so weird and out of left field. And then the, the weird thing is, I, I feel like the, the last scene with her in it hurts and helps either interpretation, because to me, her performance, it seems like, like she's under a curse or something. Like, and she's like, you got to talk to him, different, blah, blah, blah. Like the way she's talking, I'm like, that's not, you don't sound like Queenie. You're not, like Queenie wouldn't talk to Grindelwald like this. Like there's already a sense of like famil- familiarity, I'm your henchman kind of thing. But I also feel like if it was a curse, there'd be some sort of hint in this scene to it. But it, it feels like it's just, oh no, it's just Queenie after she joined him and she's still like, now they're talking about Creed. So it's like, I don't know, even that scene feels super weird with her. Yeah. Um, back to Grindelwald. Um, it's it's it, Johnny Depp has the thing, like the movie star thing. Just when he opens his mouth in this film, everything stops, and you are like magically compelled to just hang on to every word he says. And he talks a lot, which is awesome because it's, it's amazing. Uh, but just like, ah, is it like that for you? For, for me, it's just like. It is such an arresting performance. I think, I mean, I think the fact that like he, and th- again, this sounds like I'm knocking the design. I, it's ridiculous and so out there, but I really do love the design. But I think that if like, if somebody who looks like him can like show up and speak in these cool ways, he does, I'm like, Ooh, wow. Like this guy's got something to say. Like, that's a testament to his performance where I'm not constantly being like, this guy's got frosted eyebrows, guys. Like, I'm not talking about that. Like, the fact that he can be such a compelling presence to me is a testament to the performance. The way, the way he interacts with, his, with his, his lackeys, you know, they've had their time. We don't say such things. We only want freedom. I, I really love the writing in his speech where... Oh, we're we're, we're going to talk about the speech. Okay. Well, all that's... So just, just to to touch on it slightly enough just to talk about the character i i love that that's like the way he's differentiated between like he and um uh voldemort where it's like i mean obviously their thoughts 
about muggles largely like paints how we see them and like kind of it, it defines them and so the whole like equal but other like that that whole kind of thing i think is really was a really like fascinating moment yeah and his manipulations of credence throughout the film was you know he must come freely and i think that the, the, it's a, there's a lot of little touches but i think the one thing that really gets me is the use of the the, the um of grimson the guy the um sent by the ministry to kill uh credence i love that he's gotten to him so this man who's been hired by the ministry to kill credence which credence knows he'll use him to kill the nurse the one you know the link to to credence's past this person that clearly loves him he'll kill her so it'll look like the ministry did it like he's he's infiltrated the ministry to have their assassin do his dirty work and the ministry will get blamed for it. like that level of manipulation he's playing so many sides very much like dumbledore just evil yeah but yeah uh let's let's, let's talk about that climax man and I, I I can't emphasize enough how much this movie is about tone for me. Like for me, this entire climax is just like a masterclass in in this kind of filmmaking. Where like we talked about those confession scenes, even uh, you know, even though they're ridiculous, I'm completely enthralled by them. And going into this climax, as we just sit and watch this guy give his speech, and then the the. Then after the speech is over, we have the, you know, where he's doing the flames and still kind of talking. I, I just find it so enthralling. Um, but yeah, the actual contents of his speech is so, this is as a piece of writing, like a writing meeting performance is one of my favorite sequences of like the decade. Just like the opening line, you know, the old ways serve us no longer. And the way the way he speaks is so flowery and wonderful. Um, and then when he gets on muggles, um, you know, I say muggles are not lesser, but other. Not worthless, but of other value. Not disposable, but of a different disposition. And he's getting into, like, the, that strand of turn-of-the-century enlightened racism, essentially. Um, where, the, like, this was how people would talk to justify their... their like the enlightened progressives of the culture would talk like this to justify their bigotry. You know, you're not lesser, but other. I don't, I don't hate them. You know, people say I hate the knuckles. I don't, I do not hate them. And it, it's this veiled kind of bigotry that he has, um, which is very, you know, hiding it behind lofty words. And I think that's like where Queenie only listening to kind of the flowery surface of what he's saying. Oh yes, that's true. <laughs> but Jacob is actually thinking about what he's saying in that moment. Yeah. And just the way like Voldemort got, you know, Voldemort ruled through fear. Everything he, he did was about instilling fear of his power and, you know, gaining power through brute force and fear. Whereas Grindelwald seeks to convince people to join his side and the the power of his manipulation is that there is always a grain of truth in what he says. Um, and you know the grand center of his speech is where he gives his vision of World War II, which I love that idea as far as rolling fitting this into our actual history. You know we're in we're we're about several years after World War One. 
which changed the, the entire face of Western culture. Like that, that was known as the war to end all wars. So everything you know, we, we, after that, you know, they formed the UN or no, 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 the League of Nations, the precursor to the UN. They formed the League of Nations like and there was a lot of disarmament. So much of what what culture was doing in the in those you know the two decades between the world wars was trying their damnedest to avoid another war. It's like we cannot, you know, humanity cannot afford another war. And in many ways that's what led to World War II is, you know, them not being in it by trying so hard to avoid a fight, they allowed the bully to rise up essentially. But that that historical time of that of where everyone in Europe is so deeply terrified that all of the world is going to go to war again, and we cannot afford that. Um, so where he shows the vision of the war, and Jacob's line, you know, not another war, knowing that he is a veteran, and Dan Fogler's delivery is incredible. But I, I, maybe if someone isn't as familiar with the history, it doesn't mean as much. But that's one of those lines that kind of just knocks me flat with just the uh, such powerful world building put into one you know three words it says so much about the the level of fear that that this pop this current population had and why they would like why they would join Grindelwald like the the thought of another war is so unthinkable and you know his line you know that that is what we are fighting that is the enemy their arrogance their power lust their barbarity um and to where he is taking truth and a and a real fear of muggles are going to destroy us all like ending on the atom bomb that that just the notion of they're going to lead us into one war after another till till we're destroyed so we as the enlightened beings have to rise up and rule and and so like there's an element of truth and a real genuine threat that he is addressing but his flaw is that, is that he paints wizards as enlightened beings rather than also, you know, flawed, corrupt people who, as soon as they gain power, will be just as warmongering and just as, you know, just as ridiculous as humans. Um, and I love that, you know, that grain of truth and tapping into a real fear to make, because uh, by the time he, his speech ends, I'm almost, I, I, I'm almost ready to join him. It makes so much sense. I also I really love the delivery of that is the like just the the emphasis on that you're like oh, he made a good speech <laughs> like you like, just makes it it I mean it's it's what I kind of had the same thought you had we were like oh, dang it there's just enough there that I'm like where sign me up man hey fella give me a pen and continuing his manipulation where it's like you must remain calm and contain your emotions when I tell you this. There are auras among you. And then uh, he tells them, stay calm, contain your emotions, don't do anything. And then he goes on, they have killed many of my followers. They confined me and tortured me in New York. They struck down their fellow witches and wizards for the simple crime of seeking truth, for wanting freedom. Your anger, your desire for revenge is natural. So he tells them, stay peaceful, and then whips them up into a frenzy until one of them starts a fight and gets killed so that he can turn it around and make the the auras look like the bad guys. Oh, it's amazing. This it was it's the Mark Anthony from Caesar from Julius Caesar moment. I have not watched Julius Caesar. Uh, so it's it's the whole I've come to bury Caesar or uh, oh crap, what's or 
uh, contemporary Caesar, not honorum, or whatever the famous quote is. Basically, it's it's him. The whole speech is him saying, like, actually, I'm going to look it up because I don't want to misquote Shakespeare. I'm going to sound like an idiot and get made Don't you of. dare. <laughs> uh, it's the friends, Romans, country, and then lend me your, your speech. It's it's his Mark Antony from Julius Caesar moment. You know, you know, I come to bury Caesar, not praise him, where the whole speech is him saying one thing while intentionally doing, like, inciting the opposite. You know, like, it's it's so perfectly crafted to where on paper you can say i didn't do anything you know you can't you don't have me on anything spread the word it is not we who are violent oh and i talk ah. about a line i love like and, and part of it is because it's a good line and a lot of it though is because like the delivery is fantastic good moment also such a good but a very good looking sequence yeah, just the way it's shot with him just kind of pacing around the hand, kind of handheld camera, and it's so well, it's so well paced, um, and Johnny Depp is just a star, and you cannot look away. Um, but yeah, just like wh- what is there's so much happening in that sequence where you know the warning of war, the manipul you know making himself seem so reasonable and necessary, like. This is coming, people. We have to do something. And it's almost like the you know, so if you're stopping him, you're ensuring another world war. Like if you are, you are you even the good guys anymore if you try to stop him? Um, and then that final manipulation of having in, you know forcing the orders to kill somebody, and then sending everyone out to spread the word. You know the the, the government's out for blood now. Like we can't we can't live like this anymore. And, and then I love the switch after everyone's gone and his whole demeanor changes. And then he starts threatening and killing people. <laughs> He's like, it is not we who are violent. And then he kills like 30 people. <laughs> and how, how do you feel about the fiend fire kind of thing? About the what? That whole, the, the, I, I'm assuming it's fiend fire, the same thing from uh, Deathly Hallows and the Rune Requirement. I'm assuming so, but um. Whatever it is. How, how do you feel about like, just the blue fire and the way that climax plays out? I love the way it looks. The blue fire in that environment, the way it light, like the way it re- just reflects and plays with everything. Like, I think it looks amazing. I'm not a big fan of this finale, really. It's really weird. I don't know. There's so many weird questions I have about how it's all working. <laughs> it, don't think about it. Well, just it just feel feels it. like... <laughs> well, I'm feeling confused because <laughs> it's like we got this big thing, it's swirling around, then Flamel's showing up, like hop, skipping a job. You know, Let, let's talk about Flamel because I love him. Like, is he irrelevant? Absolutely. Is he fan service? Absolutely. I love it so much. The de- I love I love his design. I, I just like what what a, you know a an ancient man with all of his vitality look like and like he looks like that line from Bilbo of you know of a butter scraped over too much bread I feel thin like he looks like that like this he shouldn't be alive you know but his but he's still got all of his vitality left yeah I, I love I love everything about what his inclusion uh but I do get that he's irrelevant man, I, I'm not a big fan of this 
I I want to be. And this is one of those ones where it's like, man, he kind of went out and did something weird. And I give props to that. But it feels, I don't know, it feels like a skit to me. Like it feels like to me, it looks like a 30-year-old dude wearing old age makeup. And I I mean that to it, you can there could be an argument that that kind of like works with like what it is, like what what you just said. But to me, it just, because I've also like, if I had never seen another movie, I'd be like, oh, okay, I kind of get that. But it also is like, no, I mean, I've, I've seen fair share of like, of like younger actors under old age makeup. And so to me, I see that I'm like, oh, it's just a, it's just a young guy. They got to play an old guy. And like the, the weird, like, shuffle, like quick shuffle he does. I'm like, <laughs> the, the thing is like, I would laugh at it, but I would laugh at it if it was like, if, if in the real movie he was like an older actor and he took a longer time to get there and then they had some celebrity come on and host SNL and then they did a skit about that scene and then they do this like the shuffle joke there I would laugh at it there within that like SNL sketch but like within the movie I'm like this just feels so weird and like (laughs) out of place especially in a movie that's as dark as this is totally it's like these i get the need for levity but i'm like the movie that has this weird little like shuffle flamel from like a like a 30 year old guy under old like this just does not fit here it feels like a spoof to me um and so a lot of that just uh, for me he fits perfectly along like most of his scenes are with jacob and i feel like he he fits right alongside him well it's not it's not so much as like oh this guy doesn't fit with jacob but it's like regardless of who's there it's all the same it's all one movie and so like i can't even i can't buy that on the other part of the world there is this drowning infant and on this part of the world at a later date there's this goofy shuffling it's like it's all it all has to exist in the same universe and at that point i'm like this it just it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right that this happened all in the same run time to me. Hmm. Yeah, I don't have the problem at all. Um, <clears throat> but going back to the climax. So just about the climax, it's just like I. It didn't feel like there was like a oh this is the thing we've got to do. It just after a period of time, it just felt like fire was going around and people were doing things. And I'm like I don't I don't necessarily know what's going on like our actual lead villain has already left the scene. And so now it's just like, it's an extended moment of cleanup. That's just, I don't know. Like there was, there was a bit too much like confusion for me. Like I, I wasn't fully aware of like, wait, what's, what is this fire thing? Why is he already gone? What is that? I don't know. The mechanics of, of the finale were just to me a little bit like it, it a little needlessly complex. I love it. <laughs> it looks neat it for so a lot of um, And I, I just like the, the way it plays out where like it, it, he brings up the fire and he's like, or he's like conducting it like it's an orchestra and just like fla- flashing it, you know, flaring it out to kill a couple of orders here. And he's still continuing his manipulation, still trying to get credence to join him. Uh, you know, get Queen to join him. Um, you know, Lita. Like he's still manip- doing his his manipulation thing as he's killing people. Um, the visuals, I I love the blue fire. Um, it's it's funny. The, like the moment. Th- this is like a, the perfect encapsulation of what this movie is for me. Like the moment of Queenie turning away to join Grindelwald. 
it's like I don't buy her choice. I don't understand why she's doing what she's doing. Also, in the moment, I'm like in tears because it's so tragic. Because Jacob is like, "Don't do this," and he uh, and uh, her, 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 the way she screams, "Walk with me," and he says he comes back with, "You're crazy." Again, like knowing what that means in their within their relationship, is it's like this doesn't work. Also, my heart is breaking. This movie is a, is a paradox, man. <laughs> um, but but then just the music as it swells, and and for me, I love when they go outside. <laughs> just the ending of where he ends with "I hate Paris," which I I I find so freaking funny. Um, and then he disappears, and <laughs> the people are left with this gigantic fire. And I, I like it just like all these people have lost something. Um, like they've lost, you know, like Lita's dead. Um, you know, Credence has left. Queenie's left. Like they've, they've been broken and defeated. And now they kind of have to come together. It's like this empowering moment for me. But for me, it's just the, it's the, it's the filmmaking that really sells it. The visuals of these blue fiery dragons. It's like, another one of those this is why i watch movies for blue fire dragons <laughs> and the way it's shot um and <laughs> the little tinny fanfare as nicholas flamel walks up is so perfect because he's just this frail old old dude but also he's a great wizard so we get this almost almost like comical tinny fanfare for him and this you know the spell at, to contain and fire versus fire and James Newton Howard's score in this sequence is god tier for me. So, so his score is just like going wild and swelling, and that final sh sh towards the end, as the three blue fire dragons are trying to fly up, and the flames are coming around them, circling. So the circles getting smaller and smaller until they're like pressed together, and they're like their heads are kind of like flaring out and finally being pulled down. It's, it's I don't know. It's it's all. It's, some people say, "Oh, it's all just CGI nonsense." I just love the way Yates just visualized all that—the music, the emotion of the moment—and then it's all done and it's over, and you're kind of just left in the stillness after this wild thing just happened. Um, yeah, I don't know. I love it. And then it ends with a hug, the brother's hug, and I'm crying. And he says, "I've you know, I've chosen my side," and the the, the, the Niffler's the Niffler's limping along. Um, it's so sad. I think it looks neat. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, for me, this climax is just an absolute knockout. My jaw's kind of at the on the floor by the end of it. Then we go back to Hogwarts. Um, and I, I love just, this is again a tonal thing, but just the way Yates directs kind of denouement, which is like the stillness after a climax, where they're all just standing on the bridge at Hog to Hogwarts and Newt and Dumbledore kind of have this conversation about just like, well, what now? Can we fix this? I don't know. You know, <laughs> I love when he looks at the Niffler. Would you like a cup of tea? He'll have some milk. Have the teaspoons. Um, I don't know. I, I just love the tone at the ending of this. We're just like, we, we kind of got our butts kicked, but we're going to try and figure something out. All right. Now we have the final scene, which I pretend, like to pretend didn't happen. Oh, but it did. Yeah. So, and... <laughs> I think that the, the, this being the final scene of the movie, I think this is what made people, like people who watched this movie just weren't into it. 
this is probably what made them like hate it because there is true anger and hatred for this movie. And I think having this this reveal at the end is what really tipped people over the edge. So it's revealed that uh, you know, Credence is a Dumbledore. Uh, you know, he's Albus's brother and his name is Aurelius. And then we end. <laughs> oh boy. Um, yeah, this has as much, uh, this is every bit as cringy as like the Ray Palpatine reveal. Um, it's kind of like everything wrong with these kind of, it's the thing you expect to get when a very cynical writer who doesn't really care about the franchise, but just wants to draw up some interest. This is the kind of thing they do coming from rolling. I want to believe there's more to it. And she has, she has said as much in interviews, she has said in interviews, um, Make no assumptions. Whatever you think you know at the movie might not be the case at the end of the third movie. Um, I know that sounds cryptic, but you really have to let the story unfold before you draw your conclusions. And that was in reference to the Credence reveal. So something is coming. Right now, I hate it like to my very bones, but also I'm holding back on full criticism until I figure out what the heck she's doing. What do you think? Yeah, so, I mean, with that, it's hard for me to be convinced that it is what it seems. But is it, so, I, so I think by the end of this whole story she's telling with this series, it's not going to be as bad as it feels right now. But at the same time, even if it is different, I really hate these kind of bait and switches anyways. Like ending with the Aurelius Dumbledore and then being like, well, actually, here's this clarifying thing that changes it. It's not really that. Then it's like, well, now I, that ended like I I hate I don't like that ending for a different reason now because it's like it's not even what it says it's just this other weird I don't know like it's very it's meant even if it's changed it's meant to be that ah oh, wow and so like whenever you do those kinds of things it backtracks on that then it's like well I don't know like I don't I I think that we're gonna not dislike this as much as we do now but I don't see it. I don't see it getting to the point where I'm like, oh, okay, I think this was a good decision. Yeah. yeah, it's one of those things like we're, I'm, I'm hoping for a retcon. Yeah, but even then, just... like, even, it's like the best case scenario with the retcon is still, I would have probably rather not have been in a situation where a retcon is needed in the first place. Absolutely. So like, the problem is like, this could work if we didn't have the whole Ariana backstory from the from Deathly House because like, because it is, we have such a detailed portrait of his childhood. There's just nowhere to fit this reveal. I, it, I, it feels like a, a, contra a complete contradiction. I almost sent that, sent like just a joke to you and Ryan in our uh, messenger group, just saying like, you know, the whole idea about the life and lies of Dumbledore. Like, did you did you know that he actually had a brother who didn't like them? Like, oh wow, that's kind of crazy. Oh, and he also had a sister. Oh, that's like, oh, and she was, uh, she was a crap, an obscurial. It's like, oh, wow. Like, all these things. Like, no, no, I'm not done. And he had a brother, and he was an obscure. It's like, oh, my, okay, I get it. He's got a crazy practically stuff, like, adding every, like, everything under the sun. He's going to have, like, eight siblings with trauma attached to each of them by the end <laughs> of the season. Okay. My, my, my primary hope is that this is just another one of, um, Grindelwald's manipulations because because we know that Grindelwald wants Credence because he thinks he's the only person powerful enough 
to defeat Dumbledore because because you know they can't fight each other. So he wants Credence to be his weapon to kill Dumbledore. You know, on his path to power. So telling Credence that you know you're actually a wizard. This man is your brother, and he abandoned you to that horrible life you lived. Go get vengeance. That kind of works. Um, another fan theory. This one's a bit more twisted and is really dark. What if he's not actually Dumbledore's brother? He's his nephew and he's Ariana's son and, and Grindelwald's the father. And that's what caused the fight mm. between Aberforth and him that caused her death. It's dark. Like the notion of him, you know, taking advantage of her in that way. Um, I don't know. Like maybe that could work. Like the, the brother doesn't work at all. Like this, that week, the kind of the family scandal that would be swept under the rug that wouldn't even come up, but from Rita Skeeter, um, I, I'd rather not have to go to these lengths to try and fi- figure out a fan theory to make it work, but that would at least be, I feel like, really dark and twisted and interesting, with what we know we've known. I don't know. What'd you think? I mean, Jack, I, there's the thing. Is it with with the track? these first to have laid that would be another thing where i'd be like man that's super compelling and interesting and it's competing with eight other subplots <laughs> so like <laughs> i don't know i think there could be something there that could be like you know good meat for drama but i just i don't know if i have faith that if that's where they go i'll even really appreciate the execution but we'll see yeah, and it gets a, like the 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 conve- the uh, contrivances that happen in the story. Because you think about like where he came from, the idea that Lila Strange and this Dumbledore child child are on the same boat, and she swished the babies out. Like the the level of contrivances you're getting at. Like if he is legitimately a Dumbledore on any level, it's hard to be believable in that regard. I, I I hope it's entirely a lie from 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 Grindelwald to tur- to get to motivate uh, Credence to kill Dumbledore, and he was just a nobody. He was just some child that Lita ran into on the boat, and he's had this bizarre, horrible, tragic destiny thrust upon him. That's what I'm hoping. Um, but even that, you know, it's, it's a retcon to fit a bad retcon. So uh, <laughs> whatever. Putting this at the end, that was just, I love you rolling, but geez, you really shot yourself in the foot. It, it, now that we kind of covered the story, a couple of just little things I want to mention. Um, the production design of this film, I think, is like uh, the greatest it's ever been. Um, just, just the interiors, like the interior of Nicholas Flamel's house, just the random rooms people go into. The sets are just so detailed and beautiful. The final you know the amphitheater where the final confrontation happens was all a set built by craig stewart that callback to like the oh what's it called the the room from harry potter that has all the glass prophecies the hall of prophecies okay well oh you know kind of in the name oops um i feel like the the room that they're looking for like that the room of record oh yeah the really bank kind of has that vibe i love the the way they all move like that's another really yeah, this really deserved a production design nomination. Also, the costumes. Everybody is so well-dressed in this movie. I'm not a person who usually knows costumes, but like I'm 
So it like Newt's blue overcoat and yellow waistcoat. Um, your know, Tina's kind of bob haircut with her leather overcoat. Like each character just looks so great. Grindelwald's overcoat, just a bunch of overcoats. Uh, the wizards in you know the 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 the, the aurors where they have their like really stylish fedoras. Mm. Um, it's just I I love every single costume in this movie. Oh, um, uh, he's a uh, Grindelwald's a French uh, female hench hench person. Um, just like her costumes. Oh, Lita's purple dress. Everything like how this didn't get a costume design nomination is beyond me. Yeah, everybody looks good in this movie. And lastly, would be a, a lot of cool magic. Just I love all the different uses of magic we see, kind of just thrown thrown off to the side. Um, the way um, this commander calls up the wind to get rid of his ministry tailor. <laughs> the guy pulls out his umbrella. I love that image. I really he's being love that. Being pushed backwards. Um, and I love that he's gone more back to classic apparition rather than the weird smoky flying. Like there's a lot of really cool apparition uh, effects in this yeah. movie. Um, the glove, Dumbledore's glove. glove. Like, that's just, I love the, I love him calling the fog. Like there's, there is, yeah. Cool magic stuff. Oh, that sequence where they're walking through the streets and just every, every, you know, 30 seconds, they're kind of apparating somewhere else to lose their tails. Like, and walking through foggy London streets, you know, you're trying to avoid tails. It's it's so it feels so Cold War. Yeah. Like we're watching a Cold War thriller. Um, the personality of the glove, the way it sticks his, the card in his pocket, just pats him. Don't get a laugh. You know, the apparition up to the rooftop. It was the less conspicuous rooftops full then. <laughs> just Dumbledore is such a showman. Okay, so something I was I love the visual of this, but the interaction with it was weird. I I it's such a weird look, but I love the black veil falling over the building. Oh yeah. Like that is such a cool visual. It was weird. There's at first I was like, wait, do people not see it? But you saw some extras like looking super startled by it and tons of extras just walking past it as if nothing happened. That so guy's was, a wizard. Do what? So that extra's a wizard. But was that it? I think I think only wizards can see it. Oh, like, we, okay. There are a lot of in Harry Potter. There are several different things where like only wizards can see this okay, thing. Maybe that's what it is then, because so, I was like, like did they just not get all the extras on the same page? <laughs> because it was yeah, like, I think yeah, he's just calling all wizards in Paris to his event. Yeah, but the, talking about like haunting dreamlike imagery, the cloth say, that of, looked like some sort of weird like Salvador Dali secret. Like it was. So cool to me. <laughs> the, the dude running the illegal port key. Um, just this random like countryman standing on the Dover cliffs. Um, you know, 50, 50 galleons, thirty to go to Paris, twenty not to tell anyone. Price of fame, pal. <laughs> Jacob's scream echoing over the Dover cliffs as they're swirled away. Um I mentioned before the the, the spell new cast to recreate um all the events of the night before. And then so like the spell creates golden imagery, so he releases the Niffler to find golden things. <laughs> just the way the Niffler's like rubbing along the ground trying to get the gold. Yeah, it's just like there's so many just like cool little moments of magic that are kind of just just tossed off to the side. It, I felt like in the first film, every time they tried to show off the magic, the CGI just wasn't up to snuff and it didn't work. 
here, I feel like both they're even more creative with cool magic, but also the effects can actually do what they're trying to do. Um, anything else you want to mention? Uh, last, last thing, and I think it would segue us into music. Okay, so it's a positive and negative about title sequence. I, I mean, this is just me being dumb and silly, but it did, it was a genuine thought. I do not like opening with the the Wizarding World logo. It hmm. it feels it feels. Did the, I don't recall. Did the first film do it? it? The first one didn't, which is already like I already like strict uniformity, um, uh-huh. and this broke that. And also, like, it just feels weird. It, it feels like I don't know. It feels like the beginning of a commercial, like letting you know, like, oh, this is part of the Wizarding. I mean, Marvel and DC do it. <laughs> like it's yeah, but I. I well, the thing is, that's part of the actual brand. Like, this is, this would be like, I don't know, like Star Wars opening up with the Skywalker saga, where it's like, it's a, a name that we've kind of, we're throwing around for marketing purposes, but including it in part of the runtime. And also, I like, I don't, I don't like it as a name, like, as an opening title credit saying the Wizarding World. I, mm. there, there's something about it that I give a thumbs down to. <laughs> uh, but the other thing, whenever this thing says the crimes of Grindelwald and the music is doing its thing, I got goosebumps. Like that title reveal is so good. So, yeah, just have to do a, a little negative and positive there. Yeah. So, so let's move into our thoughts on the score. Um, it, I'll, I have a lot of tracks written down, so I'll, I'll kind of mention them. And if you had th- thoughts about those or ones I missed, you'll, you can jump in. Um, just the opening one, the Thestral Chase. I, I, I really do enjoy how they have the brief, uh, you know, nod to Hedwig's theme. Just yeah. this is this is Harry Potter, and then instantly uh, James Newton Howard establishes that the female vocal uh, motif, you know, ha ha ha, like that thing. And that's like the backbone to the music. We hear it so many times. So like when it comes together in the end, it's like it, it just feels it, it's part of that dreamlike feel, but also the sense of inevitability with the entire film. Just it, the, for me, the whole film is always feels like it's, it's just kind of drawing you forward to this kind of inevitable, inevitable conclusion. Um, but then going into the chase, there's this like heavy, brassy, clangy sound. It sounds like Isengard um, to me. Mm. Um, it's like really exciting, dark action music, but then ending on the burst of the Fantastic Beast themes. I love this theme so I much. I do too. Like, it's like whenever it revealed the title and we get that music just in full force, I was like, especially like after like legitimately loving the intro, I was like, here we go. This is awesome. Mm, such a cool, such a cool sound. Then there's like uh, Newt, Newt and Lita. It's just really pure, sweet kind of uh music uh nagini i think is really creepy dark intriguing sound i really like this track to me it is like we talk about when tracks are able to convey like these weird combinations of feelings and to me it's like there's something deeply mysterious and intriguing while also like super tragic run away like this is which which uh Going back to Deathly Hallows Part One, the kind of sound, the music in that scene in uh in uh what's what's where's uh where Dumbledore lived and Harry lived as a child? Godric's Hollow. 
Oh yeah. Like that's it. Like this is horrible. Run away. Also, I'm very intrigued yeah. by it. <laughs> yeah, and to me, like this. I guess it goes with what they're going to be doing with the Ganyan Trapper and Snake Body, but it's like I get a sense of tragedy to this, where it's like it's creepy and it's haunting, but there's something like really sad underneath it all. Yeah. Then there's a new tracks Tina. This is like a really bright. Um, investigative Fantastic Beast theme. Like, it feels like, oh, we're on it. We're finding things. It's discovery. Like, I love that the theme could kind of have those different tones to it. Um, and then we get a burst of the romance theme when uh, Newt sees Tina, kind of the image of her. Um, that that theme is gorgeous. I um, love, the, like, Newt and Tina's theme together. It's so freaking pretty, dude. Yeah, the, the big one for that would be Salamander Eyes, which just, it's such a gorgeous theme. Uh, then there's a Queenie searches for Jacob. Again, it's really mournful. Just you just feel like <laughs> the loss and the despondency, kind of all that's really that's powerful. Also like this is the track that to me goes best with the general mood and vibe of this movie, which is like dark and surreal. Like there's a yeah. weirdness. It's it's not enough that it's just like it is mournful and it is like it's like there's also just a feeling of like this reality is like it's just it's such an unnatural kind of musical movement to it to me i really like it a lot mm. next one oh this is a scene i forgot to talk about irma and the obscurus um first i want to talk about this scene i i really like this and, and you know first just the scene between him and irma this actress is really wonderful and just the design of this the, a half elf just this really tiny sweet little woman and just as the the, des- the desperation Ezra Miller plays and just the the need to find who am I like and it's like ma'am uh you're you're on my you're on my birth certificate uh you know my, my adoption papers and just the way he reacts to just this little bit of love from this woman and just the 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 vulnerability but in that scene and then it the turning into the rage when uh Grimson kills her and the way Newt, I mean, the way David Yates visualizes raw power through the the image of the Obscurus, I love so much. Just like with the the, the uh, he walks up on the body and he looks around, and then we just we just see the room shifting as the power builds up, and then we and the, and the way he forms the shield around him and then just all the debris comes crushing down on it. It keeps expanding and coming back in. It is one of the coolest visuals. Um, I really love that sequence. Um, yeah. And it, I think the track really show really showcases that kind of the sense of just raw chaotic power. That is the Obscurus. Yeah. Uh, lead us flashback again. This is you know, the, 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 that female vocal motif, but it's kind of like younger and less sad. Because it's you know it's to her youth, um, but also her theme, which is like these angelic swells, which goes into Lita's confession, which which kind of weaves through all these different themes we've been hearing, like her theme, that kind of that vocal thing. It just it's really beautiful. It reminds me of the track Justice uh, from Murder on the Orient Express, where it's just like. The, the music is like, I'm going to take you on a really sad journey. I'm going to break your heart. Then I'm going to heal you. Uh, um, but that there's a run of tracks. Lead us confession, visions of war, spread the word, and wants to the earth, which I feel like all kind of flow together. Visions of war 
is this really slow, creepy, evolving dread. It's just like, and like, it's very slow, slow and rhythmic, but underneath it all, there's this really quiet drum keeping time, like drums, drums in the deep. It's like keeping time. And the drums are very quiet underneath for most of the time, slowly getting louder till by the end, the drums have taken over. And it's just this, it, it fits the speech so well. It's this building sense of dread and fear that just kind of gets under your skin. Uh, then spread the word, which kind of starts with the dread, then builds to the, this really swelling emotional music, which goes into Waz to the Earth, which is one of my one of my favorite tracks of the year just these rising strings i mentioned the very the small tinny fanfare for nicholas flamel and then the the music that accompanies the the the, the fire dragons is just like su- such a powerful catharsis for me there's just there's just there's power behind it kind of the music just like bowls you over i love it like it's the, as i wrote down it's the music you play for dragons mm. um really good the the last uh couple tracks that that really stood out to me as well is i really like uh the track madagots is that how you pronounce that i guess yeah yeah uh listen to that and think like think 80s to me that it's it's the same <laughs> it's the same feeling i got as the um the fathers from the last jedi that track where it's like, it just, you feel like you might as well be, you're either watching like 80s Spielberg or you're, you're seeing a, like a new Zemeckis. Like it just, it's, it's got that perfect, wonderful 80s adventure sound where you're like, how dare you not enjoy the sound of this? Like, you know, you love it. You know, it's fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I really like that one a lot. And then I like the one that just, uh, it's just called The Crimes of Grindelwald. It's, it's just to me super like kind of it's fun and playful and uh, really. Is that that's like the the, um, the end credit suite? Um, Spotify has it listed as its own track. Just Fantastic Beast Crimes of Grindelwald. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that kind of it winds together all the uh, the themes because I don't remember it being super long. I feel like oh, it's it's only it's like three minutes, but it kind of. It's, it's it's still like the sweet. Okay, gotcha. I guess, I'm, I guess I'm just used to sweets being like eight minutes on soundtracks. <laughs> yeah, it's just James Newton Howard showing off. Like, oh, look at all this beautiful music I wrote for you. Um, Fine, you did yeah. good. And, I'll enjoy it. And there's a quote I wrote down. Like, I was listening to the soundtracking podcast with Edith, Edith Bowman, where she, she brings in composers and directors and talks about the film music. Um, and this one was with Yates and Heyman. I'll come back to this quote later because they kind of address a, a, a flaw in the film. But they were talking about how the it was so hard to, to put this film together because there's so many subplots. And it, the, the real difficulty was balancing the subplots. And Heyman said, you know, but I think James's music helps in some ways. It really helps. One of the things it does is that it's a unifying element. In spite of the fact that we're, there are all these themes, he's found a way to tie it all together to make it whole, which, I, which is really the mark of an astonishing composer. And I think like that gets to what I love about this score is like, it's, it's this omnipresent just force in the film that makes, it makes it feel cohesive. Like even as we're, we're going on with these weird irrelevant directions, the sound, there's, there's a soundscape he creates that, that unifies the tone of the film. 
in a really powerful way. So moving into our final thoughts, um, let's do a quick final thoughts and do give our star rating for the film out of five stars and our ranking of the series. What, what is yours, James? Okay, so my, it's, it's really hard to like sum up like quick final thoughts because I, I really love the direction in this. And we honestly think about it now, I don't even feel like I've took enough time to talk about how much I really love the tone where go ahead we have a scene where like this sweet half elf nanny is just like just killed like an afterthought in this vicious chase from credence like this movie is dark and like I feel like I'm predisposed to love like really like dark and brooding kind of movies did we mention uh, Baby's Rounds yeah like it's this place also is- Grindelwald's followers just randomly oh Grindelwald arrives at a muggle house with a hearse and they go through this routine like they've done it a hundred times. Yeah, like, and, oh man, the music that plays during there, where it's like, there, you get some of that kind of uh, half-blood prince thing where it's like, it's not even this big, huge thing. It's just like, what, how, how moody, how like perfectly suited. And so there are so, there's so much about this that I just love. I love this movie's tone and look and feel and like I really do it's just there's all it's it's a movie that's kind of hard for me to really connect with and maybe that comes with rewatches you know like I like Newt but I'm not super invested in his journey I like Jacob but the stuff with him and Queenie is is interesting in terms of something to think about but for me at least like at that last scene when they're when she's like you know telling him to step in and he calls her like i don't i'm not really feeling anything there and i'm like this the recounting of like what happened between letta and he's like all of that stuff i think is really cool and i think it's done well in the moment but it's just packaged so weirdly and it's just so desperately fighting for breathing room that like ultimately i don't i'm like I'm trying to grab onto something in this movie and there's so many things that I just, I feel like oh my, I just keep slipping on something and I can't hold on to <laughs> really anything here. And so it ends. And again, this is all just after one viewing, but it ends and I feel a little cold. Like I, I didn't, not a lot happened to me emotionally. I loved, I loved the feel of it. I love the mood and the direction and the visuals and all of that. And I like a lot of individual things. There are certain things with characters done that I like, but I still, I, I don't, I, I feel unmoved by the end and confused about a lot of decisions. <laughs> so it was, I don't know. It's really weird. I, I gave it two and a half stars in my review. I might go three here just because like, like I said, it's, it's, it'd be, in a way it'd be kind of crazy for me to, talk, to say that I love the direction as much as I genuinely do and to stop at two and a half. Like, I don't know if my problems with the script are quite significant enough to do this. So I keep going back and forth between that. I'll go ahead and say three right now. So my ranking is number one, The Prisoner of Azkaban. Number two, The Half-Blood Prince. Number three, The Deathly Hallows Part One. Number four, The Chamber of Secrets. Number five, The Order of the Phoenix. Number six, Deathly Hallows Part Two. Um, number seven, the Sorcerer's Stone. Number eight, the Goblet of Fire. 
number nine, uh, Kranz Grindelwald, and number ten, Fantastic Beasts. I was with you that you broke my heart and stomped on it and crushed my soul. (laughs) So, part of it really is like I I find I find all the characters entertaining in the moment, but with the exception of Newt, they're they're people that I like in the same way that I might like just a character in any random movie where it's like, oh, I guess that was fun. I don't feel a big like Jacob and Kimi and Tina and stuff. And like, even whenever what they're doing with the characters infuriates me, I'm still like, oh, I'm with Harry and Ron and Hermione, man. Like, this is it's a good time. I'm at Hogwarts. Hogwarts is always cool. Like, there's a level of comfortability that I feel in Goblet of Fire, even when it's annoying me. <laughs> that i i don't uh, have here yeah well if you hadn't guessed i love this movie <laughs> like I, I i fully acknowledge its innumerable flaws and several flaws i think would kill just about any other film that like, with weaker direction it it's so freaking overstuffed there's so many weird choices but i adore pretty much every second of it just existing in this world and it, like I can understand, like, if you don't like the characters, this pro- movie is probably insufferable to you. But for me, I, I connect to these people on just an instinctual gut level. So, like, I, oh, I don't even, like, I don't understand. How could you not, like, how could you not love Nude? How could you not love Jacob? How could, how could you not love T? Like, for me, I, ca- I care about these people more than I do the trio in the Harry Potter films, not the books. And and so my love of the books kind of carries over, so I like them in the movies. But for me... Like this is just movies, and I I love these ca- this cast so much. Like every single weird like Yusuf or Nagini or like these random characters that shouldn't be in the movie when they're on screen, it makes me care about them. And just the vibe. There aren't that many movies out there that I kind of vibe like this with, where I just I just kind of forget I'm watching a movie. I just exist with it, and there are like varying levels of engagement when you're watching a film. And for me, like this is this, this, this film brings me almost to the, the to the highest level as far as I am in it at what, when, it, even if it's a scene that makes no sense, I am there and I am loving it. Just, and that's, that's like cast to go to Yates and, you know, the characters rolling, created Yates's direction, the score, like, all of it just comes together to, against all laws and against all kind of rationality make me adore this film. Um, so I give it three and a half stars out of five, probably more than it deserves, but I love it. And as far as my ranking, I go prisoner of Azkaban, number one, number two, half blood prince, number three, deathly house part one, number four, the chamber of secrets, number five, the order of the Phoenix, number six, fantastic beasts, number seven, the deathly house part two, number eight, the crimes of Grindelwald, number nine, the sorcerer's stone and number 10, the goblet of fire. And, and speaking of why I, I noticed you put this this over Fantastic Beasts. I think Fantastic Beasts is an infinitely more successful narrative. It's like <laughs> it has a story and it works. I don't even know if this film has a story. So that's kind of big. I think it has stronger character arcs as well. So even though I love the direction so much more in this, I think when all the pieces are put together, fantastic. The first one is just a stronger film. Yeah, I, yeah. I think for me is like I said, I have similar issues with both where the 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 characters and arcs don't work for me super well in the first one and i think with both films it feels like i'm just like juggling various subplots that only vaguely come together and so it isn't it isn't even like 
I, I don't think the narrative, I don't give it as much points for like a stronger narrative in Fantastic Beasts because even with that narrative, I'm like, I, there were different, there were a lot of things going on and half the movie was just about gathering beasts until it was like kind of like shuffled into the main thing that was happening. I'm really curious what you'll think in hindsight, like seeing how the threads connect. I, yeah, I definitely want no. to rewatch. Uh, and I probably will end up re like doing a just probably doing another series rewatch before too long. Um, but with that being said, like I think I, I think a big thing is the the brand of charm and humor of the first one. And this is just like it may say something just as much about me as the film, but it's not necessarily like to my taste. And so a lot of what draws people there doesn't really work for me. And then this film comes along and it's just dark and brooding and angry. And I'm like, yeah, what a, what a movie. So, yeah. All right. So moving to the box office, um, it earned 159 million domestically and 495 million in the foreign markets uh, for a worldwide total of 654 million on its massive $200 million budget. It is the lowest grossing Wizarding World film by a wide margin. And the previous one was already lower than the previous films before it. Um, so, it probably made some money, but that budget with a you know it had a massive budget, a really big marketing campaign, and a, a very low domestic gross. So, I think it probably made a profit, but it did not make much, and it certainly isn't make did not make the type of you know the type of cash Warner Brothers is expecting from a Harry Potter film. I think the next point really kind of highlights that is that it was the twentieth high, highest grossing film of two thousand eighteen domestically. Um, and it was at number 10 worldwide. And the last Harry Potter film was the highest grossing film of the year, you know, domestically and worldwide. So coming in at number 20 has to hurt. The entire series never dipped below number 10 domestically on their eighth, their eighth, their eighth film run. They were always in the top 10. Many times they were in the top three. A couple of times they were the highest grossing film of the year. This one was at number 20 of, of that year. Mm. So it's just... It's not making the kind of money they want. And critically, it fared even worse. It holds a 36% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 52 on Metacritic. And looking at the audience rankings on that site and several others, it's pretty much always sits right about the middle of their ranking. Usually it's just slightly above the middle, but audience rankings always skew a little more positive than usual, than I guess what people actually think of the film because i feel like people who like the film rate it more than people who don't like it so they always skew positive a little bit more positive than actual audience reception so if a film is about the is, is at the middle of any ranking site it usually means the film is actually is disliked and that's where this film is so it's, it's the lowest rated film in the series critically and audience wise by a wide margin so talking about this film's legacy like we just had the trailer for for Secrets of Dumbledore come out, and I there are some fans like I, I I saw it shared around by people who were excited for it, but like the overwhelming feeling in like the film buff circles is just like absolute disdain at the moment. Is that what you're feeling too? Uh, so honestly, like I haven't really seen a or lot. ignoring it that too. Yeah, that's. Honestly, that's what I've seen more than anything of, which is just, it came out and I like, there was interaction with it in the like chats that you and I are in. <laughs> I mean, I made sure you heard a lot about it. <laughs> but like, 
outside of that, it's crazy that a trailer for a new Harry Potter movie came out and a lot of film groups I'm in are like, I just saw very, very little activity at all. And so had I not, like, honestly, had I not been in the chat, I probably could have just kind of spent my day on social media without knowing that this came out. Like it just, it seems like such an underwhelming reaction to the trailer. Yeah, and I think there was an immense negative backlash to this film. And Warner Brothers really delayed it several times before COVID. It wasn't even scheduled to start shooting until like 18 months after Crimes of Grindelwald came out. So like they took a long, they had a long pause. Like people were genuinely wondering. There was a long period of just silence. Like, what is the plan? Are they going to continue? Like there were there were you know, rumblings and rumors, and they brought in Steve Clovis, and like you can tell that Warner Brothers realized that this isn't working. And and, I, and then going back to that quote from the soundtracking podcast I listened to, uh, here's a quote from Yates where he said, "If anything, I think ultimately because there were there were so many things going on in the story, we never stay on one idea, one key idea for long enough." I think when we look back at these movies, each one will be its own thing. And we've learned a lot making this movie and we're, and we're proud of many things in it, really proud of it, but it's overstuffed with things, I think, in a good way, you know, in, a, in a many good ways. So, like, a director is saying that in his press tour. You know he is, like, he's clearly aware. And, like, other interviews, whenever he was asked, what's the most difficult thing about, about this film, he would always say, like, the amount of subplots. So... Like Warner Brothers took a lot a long time in between the films to restructure, bring it, you know, bring in Steve Clovis to help to be a co-writer this time, a credited co-writer. Yates is clearly aware of that flaw in that previous film. So like it's it's really interesting to see that and and, and the funny thing is like they really when they released a teaser for the trailer, like three days before the trailer came out, there was like two minutes of just Remember Harry Potter? Remember how that makes you feel? Remember how wonderful this world is? Like, they are trying to, like, jumpstart the fandom's excitement for a series that was crushed by the previous film. It's really fascinating to watch from, like, an outside like, meta perspective. And I, we have previous examples of trying to do this, like the Justice League thing. But, like, Justice League started filming before Batman v Superman came out. So the pivot happened during filming. Whereas this film, they had two years before filming began to pivot and change things. So, like, I'm really intrigued as to, like, how they're going to work this out and how they're going to address criticisms. I think another pivot would be, like, The Force Awakens, which is clearly a reaction to the prequels. Uh, they didn't have that long to do. Or The um, Rise of Skywalker. Well, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not convinced that Rise of Skywalker was so much pivoting as just clueless. <laughs> That's a whole discussion. We'll um, see. I don't know. There's, I don't think that J.J. Abrams frequents like online discussion boards enough to have made certain decisions that that movie made. I think some decisions in that movie were made exactly because of like interaction with fandom and what they want. Maybe. Um, so uh, you, as someone who is not terribly excited for these films, what do you think watching that trailer as far as the future of the series? Like, are you excited by it? Are you like, I don't care, like the rest of the film? You're the film community? I'm very interested in this. 
I'm really interested to see what they do. Another thing, and this is, I mean, this is part of my criticism of these right now is, you know, we're two movies in, and I know that these are about like this, this war with Grindelwald, but it, it feels like it's, I don't know, Harry Potter had an easy out in how they were structured because they were about this coming storm with Voldemort, but the school setting also allowed them to have one-off movies where you never have, you, you don't get, you don't really ever have to ask like, what is this whole thing about? Well, you got this in the background. And then we know that the semester is gonna come with its own adventure. Here, you don't have that kind of narrative framework with school years. And so we're yeah. two movies in, I'm kind of like, if this is a five movie thing, what's the thing that's just pushing me towards film five? Like, why am I invested? Like, what is the overarching plot here? And I just, I don't feel like it's, I don't feel like it's cohesive enough for me to be like, man, I've got to hit that part three now when it comes out. Interesting. Like for me, like the way this film went down, I'm like, I am ready for this. Like, you know, Grindelwald's out there doing nefarious crime. He's doing his crimes. We got to go stop him. Uh, <laughs> and just, I want, I want to vibe more with these characters. And okay. It was another, a quote I ran into from Rowling. Apparently the, her original plan pre-crimes of Grindelwald was for this story to end in 1945 because, and that that's when the duel happens in the books, Grindelwald versus Dumbledore duel happened in 1945. So she's, is a quote from her. She says, you know, this story ends in 1945. That's why we ended up doing five movies because we're spanning a 19 year period. That's wild to me. Like, there's going to be massive time jumps. And like, that's, like that, that how that's going to be structured, I find fascinating. Like the next film looks like it t picks up pretty quickly after that. At some point, we're going to have a five, ten year time jump. That's weird. X Men prequels do it all the time, and they don't worry about aging graphics. <laughs> yeah, um, I, and also, like the Yates has said, we are going to see World War Two. Like, like he because uh, because nineteen forty five. That is the final year of World War II. So they could structure this to where Grindelwald is one of the major forces behind World War II. Oh, we could even have like a, um, speaking of Jared Harris, you know, Moriarty in a, in a Game of Shadows where he's behind the scenes trying to orchestrate World War II or World War I. Like we could have some of that going on. Like, I have tried to, just the thought of one of these movings happen concurrently with the the high at the height of world war ii with the our characters dipping in and out of the wizard side and the human side of that war like the, the, just the possibilities are endless and just like, my imagination is on fire uh you know with, with the possibilities for what could be done with that that kind of story um so i'm really fascinated and excited to see what she's going to do I mean, I, I, you know, I want to see you know, the, the Hungarian iron bellies flying against you know, the, the Norwegian ridgebacks and World War II with dragons. I mean, this is this is amazing. What, what, what do you think about those revelations? I mean, I think it sounds like, sound like it could be cool. Like, the, the sequence with the whole World War II projection was the... the I kind of like the, the whole playing with period and magic. Like, it's, it's kind of like catnip for me where it's like, look, it's... It's a uh, it's wizards, but they're like old timey fedora wearing cups, and I'm like, hmm, I like this. 
so like doing that with like you know world war ii era kind of style like i feel like regardless of the quality that element is is gonna be cool so and i mean like you said seeing it like maybe what did world war ii have like did that reach into the wizarding world was there like that because you know germany and america are fighting does that mean that german wizards feel the same and american wizards feel like are, if they're aware of the overall world events do their worlds kind of replicate that and they're all, i don't know like i think there are neat things that it could do so it'll be interesting to see how it happens all right so that's a, that's a good place to wrap this up all right so james where can people find you outside the podcast you can find me over on Letterboxd. I'm there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Uh, and we are also, both of us, admins over on the Outer Rim, a Star Wars group. Uh, and we are deep into Star Wars territory. We have Boba Fett about to come out. So if you enjoy Star Wars and you like talking about it, definitely feel free to join us over there. You can also find me on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. Uh, you can find me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. Um, and I have a YouTube channel called Greenery01, where I put out these uh, music, these movie-based music videos and trailer mashups and stuff like that. Um, so we have a kind of major, some major changes coming for the podcast. Uh, we're going to do a, a separate announcement kind of small episode. That'll be what's up next. Uh, we'll just kind of talk about some just upcoming changes and stuff like that. So uh, until then, uh, we will see you later. I hate Paris.